You are listening to Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple, related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it cannot be completely destroyed. By my co-host, John Syracuse. You may have heard of him from uh, Ars Technica. I'm Dan Benjamin, founder of 5x5. Today is January 6, 2012, a brand new year. This is episode number, well, I think it's number 49. We would like to say thanks to our two sponsors today for making this possible. It's MailChimp.com. Ring in the new year with MailChimp and also Shopify.com. We'll tell you more about them as we continue with the program. We'd also like to mention that bandwidth for this episode is provided by VidMeUp.com, a new free service that allows you to create your own video site, your videos, your branding, VidMeUp.com. My whole USB bus went dead. I couldn't even move my mouse. How'd you restart? SSH in? No, I, I unplugged. Uh, the mouse is plugged into the back of the computer. I unplugged the, the but I unplugged the, well, the keyboard is plugged into the back of the computer and the mouse is plugged to the keyboard. So I unplugged the mouse from the keyboard and then the mouse moved again, but nothing else still works. So I just restarted. So you were, you no. were able to restart successfully without a, a hard crash or something. Yeah, no, it's just, it, it, it happened once before, like the same thing last I time. Remember I remember you, you can hear me. I don't, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, in the spirit of the season, I'm gonna blame uh, static electricity. <laughs> you should, as well, you should. You I know mean, what I get with the, with the static it? electricity? I get the thing where you're listening <laughs> to the iPod with the earbuds. Yeah. <laughs> and you take off the your winter jacket. And you get shocked through the, yeah. the earbuds into the inside of your ear. It's the it's 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 one of the as far as exposed skin goes. It's one of the the places you would least want to get shocked. At this point, I'm like acclimated to it. I just like you know, it's like oh, I'm taking my coat off. I'm going to fear that tingling in my ears. Like ow, ow, ow. Yeah, I'll you know where I'll get it because it's uh, it may not be as cold. Well, I get does get cold here in the great state of Texas, but uh, periodically it will get very dry here. And even when it's warmer, you get that the same kind of effect. And I've got these big, you know, these big Sony, uh, uh, the uh, MDR 7506s, which are like, you know, they're studio reference headphones, but they'll be plugged into the mixer. So if I move around a little too much or, you know, grab something from another desk and slide back or whatever it is, you'll get the same kind of shocks, but you get them on the, the whole like ear. <laughs> it's a good it's a hazard of this job is there metal touching you where does the no come from on it the big, comes those, those uh, big squishy headphones it, right? yeah they are it, it comes through the, the middle of them i guess <laughs> it arcs all the way from like the middle yeah it hurts yeah i don't think it's as bad as the what i've experienced with them actually inside the ear yeah that's like direct skin to the <laughs> it's metal bad contact <laughs> so how was your new year john everything go okay went just fine it's all you want to say about it yeah, no, I didn't do anything. Were you woken up by fireworks? Uh, I didn't stay up for midnight, but I wasn't woken up by fireworks. There were a couple of little pops here and there, but it's not super loud. Yeah, it's they, like Texas where they're firing the guns into the air. Right, that's what it sounded like here. It was quiet. You see, in Florida, about two weeks before any holiday where it, it m- might remotely involve fireworks, so obviously 4th of July, New Year's, any really any holiday at all, Thanksgiving, People about two weeks ahead of time will start nightly lighting off fireworks. And this will go on for those two weeks until the, the night of when there is constant stream of fireworks from about 6 p.m. Uh, through about 4 a.m. 
on, on whatever the actual night is, Valentine's Day, whatever it is. And it's, it's been in every neighborhood I lived in in Florida, from South Florida, Central, all around. We've lived in some pretty nice neighborhoods. We've lived in some decent neighborhoods. And, you know, when we were just starting out, they were like college neighborhoods. Oh, it's the same in all of them. It's the same in all of them. President's yeah. Day, whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is. That's a common phenomenon. We get that a little bit around here. I used to remember on Long Island, too. So let me ask you another thing about uh, up there. And you're in Massachusetts, for those who don't know that. Yes. Are we are we started now? I feel like this is Merlin's day. Are we, are we started? Yeah, this is a show. This is it? All right. Well, we do have stuff to get through, so go ahead. Well, I, I have a question for you. I'm just, okay, I'm, go ahead. It's a question I'm going to be asking of everybody over the next uh, couple couple shows. Because I'm taking a, little, taking a little poll here. Right. Do you know currently if you were to go and get a new driver license would they print would they print it right up there or would they give you just a piece of paper to walk out with it's like you're seeing the matrix dan did you realize that the the actual driver's license has no more uh inherent worth than the piece of printer from the paper from the laser printer it's all it's all a fiction it's all something we agree on we all agree that paper money is worth something and that that piece of paper from that laser printer is a valid texas driver's license i know that you have told me to not ask you questions and that you would deny it if I ever brought this up on the show that you have told me to, to not ask questions. And I know that you're... <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting strategy. To and I know that you're... Not a, true and then say that I know you'll deny it. No, I never said Well, that. You, you told me that you would deny it. And then I, I know that, but I need to ask you this uh, because I know you don't like being asked questions or having questions directed toward you unless you've had time to prepare, et cetera. But can you, can you answer me... It, do they give you a printed a license or a real license to walk out with or just a piece of paper? I'm just curious. I believe I got a piece of paper before I got my real license in the state of Massachusetts. It was so long ago, more than a decade that I can't remember, but I believe I, I had something, a piece of paper like folded up in my wallet so here's before this, I got the little plasticky thing. This is the scary part to me is that there's, there's a lot of... Now, I have never owned a fake ID, but I've had plenty of friends who had fake IDs uh, growing up. And you could usually tell if you looked really close that there were a fake ID. But this is back, I'm talking about in the, in the 80s, you know, when, when we were in, you know, like high school. And they didn't, you didn't, most people didn't have like high-end color printers in their house and you couldn't get, but even so today... It would take serious effort and time to reproduce a license, especially something that you could show a law enforcement official or a bank uh, and and that they would actually not pretty quickly be able to figure out was probably a fake. But this piece of paper, this is is something that I could, I, I won't say text me, but almost any basic word processing application, I could just have printed this. Now that I've seen what they look like, I could print these things out anytime I want. You do the same thing with boarding passes, you realize. Yes, I do realize that. Yeah. Now, like I said, it's all, it's, you're seeing the matrix. It's all a fiction. I don't like it. So it's a fiction that we all I don't like on. it. Yeah. At all. Makes me uncomfortable. All right. Ignorance is bliss. And now on to the officially sanctioned follow-up directly yes. from the only, the only person right. who may dictate and, what we talk way, about on the show. you think you're going to talk to someone from one of the other shows who's going to say that, no, I was never given a piece of paper and I was immediately given the little plant because it takes time to make the little No, plastic. it does not. Yeah. I, have, I have lived in two states. Uh, I've lived in, in, in officially being, been a resident of now three states while I've been eligible to drive. More than that, but while I've been eligible to drive, Florida, North Carolina, Texas. Florida and North Carolina 
You walk out of there with your, your freshly laminated, legitimate, real license. You walk out of there with it. Is it like an actual laminated? It is your thing? actual real license, and that's it. You don't get. No, but anything. I mean, like laminated, as in a piece of paper stuck between two pieces of plastic, made hot, so they melt around the edges. That's lamination versus what I have, which is like a it's like a solid piece of plastic printed thing. It's not a piece of paper between two clear pieces of lamination plastic. Uh, I okay. So when I was young, it was the laminated thing. When I was older, it was the card. The physical hard card, which is like a, you know, and I, whatever they do to make it, they do it right there and you walk out of it and it's the real hard thing with the mag stripe on the back and. Yeah, I suppose it could happen. I mean, I've only, I've only had a license in two states and both states gave me the paper. All right. Thing. I think but you know, I, you know from uh, from your Danny Holt license plate days. The, the same thing with cars. They give you the piece of paper that you stick in the back of the window. Yeah. When you leave the dealer's lot, and then you got to drive around <laughs> with a paper until you get the real license plate, yeah. or you get your kid to hold the thing up. You know. <laughs> Hopefully, you don't still get. <laughs> People don't know what Danny Holt's license plate is. I bet you can Google that phrase. <laughs> Danny Holt. I wonder what would come up if they were to Google that. You've got to be number one hit for that. You think there's some competition for that phrase? <laughs> I, I I don't know. No, that's it's number one. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It's called Google Juice. That's what that's called. I okay. like it. Follow up. Uh, I missed this last week, but we did a show on December 23rd, where near the end of it, I mentioned the iMame uh, multi arcade machine emulator program. Yeah, uh, for the iPad. Did you did you get it in time? I did. I did get it in time, and I talked about it on the show. I said, "Guys, you better <laughs> grab it because I'm sure it'll get pulled down." Well, it was like. Two minutes after the show was over when I saw a story on the unofficial app weblog saying Apple pulled it. So if you didn't get iMame, you missed it. If you were listening live, I guess that's a reason to listen live. If you were listening live, in theory, you could have gotten it in time. So I did get it and I put a bunch of ROMs on there and it's, it's pretty sweet. Well, I uh, wish, uh, may I ask which ROMs you put on there? I can look it up right now. I put on there... Uh, I I just put a, a couple. I put 1942, 1943, Black Tiger, Centipede, Millipede, Tiger Heli, Time Pilot... And uh, armored police bat rider, or something or other. Neat. Yeah, uh, I have. I used to have the complete Mame ROM collection as of sometime in the '90s, and the problem now. And I stopped collecting. I used to put out these things as like, here's the diffs between last month's complete collection and this month's, and you could actually say that yes, I have every Mame ROM in existence. At one point, that was true of me. I had every Mame ROM in existence, but then I stopped keeping up with it. Uh, but now the problem is to find the ten games that I actually like. I have to go through eight hojillion other games to try to find the ones that I actually like. So that's why I put a small amount in there. Um, and I don't know if iMame will be back, but you can always play MAME on the Mac. It's free. A uh, couple different ports to the Mac. Nothing Apple can do about that yet. Not yet. Lego versus Legos. Uh, if our listener email is to believe only Americans say Legos. Right. And, and people from England and Australia and other non-American English-speaking countries are incredulous that we all say Legos. But and they say, you don't say a bucket of Legos, do you? Yep, that's yeah, what we say. That's exactly what we say. Hard, hard to believe, but that's, that's the truth. Uh, so, yeah, all those people who wrote in, thanks for the feedback. But <laughs> things are different in America. We're a strange place. Oh, I, and I, I couldn't help giving one guy from the UK uh, a uh, reverse uh, cultural bigotry Dig against M-A-T-H-S. Do you know about that one? Hmm, yes. Uh, Instead of, in America, we go to math class. Right, math. And, we, and, and we we're studying, I'm studying math. I'm doing I'm my doing math, math homework. Yeah, yeah right. right, exactly. Math is the subject of the book, and then in England, they put the S on it. Right. I actually like that better. Oh, no, it's no good. Yeah, I like that. I like maths 
because it sounds like uh, it, 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 it. Oh, they got a lisp. Yeah, it, it makes it a little bit silly. And math is, as we all know, math is very silly. Math, math is deadly serious. It's the only thing that's deadly serious. I wish I could find this. It was some sort of car, editorial cartoon, or I don't know what it was. It was some joke that had a bunch of college professors arguing with each other over whose major is better and had like the, you know, the English department guy and the science guy and stuff like that all uh, debating uh, a physics guy, the chemistry guy debating about stuff. At one point, someone says, uh, well, you know, all these things, everything is relative. There are really no universal truths in any of our uh, uh, subject areas. And the math guy in the corner goes, <clears throat> which I thought was the, uh, it is true that the math department <laughs> is the one department in all of academia and the one pursuit in all of human endeavor <laughs> That has legitimate claim to absolute truths. Uh-huh. Nobody else does. It's all just the, the even even science. It's like the, the best current model we have. Not math. All right. Uh, Amit Couture. Sorry if I missed your name. Uh, mentioned the we forgot the Barnes and Noble Nook. We were talking about the different tablet platforms, right? And like, well, they were, you know, I I forgot Google, which is sad, and we both forgot uh, the Nook. The news now is that Barnes & Noble is looking to spin that off. So I don't know if that bodes well for their platform. Uh, but briefly, what do we think they have? They've got content for books anyway. Uh, I don't even know if they have any video at all. Uh, but they've got book content, which is, you know, in the ballpark, right? Uh, the hardware reportedly is not bad. And uh, that's about it. <laughs> their hardware platform is kind of like they pay someone to build a thing. It's not bad. Their software platform is non-existent. They're really just using customized Android, kind of like Amazon is, but even more timidly. I, I think they have a weaker hand than Android and probably a weaker hand than Google just because Barnes & Noble. When I think of Barnes & Noble, I don't think of technology superpower. You know what I mean? Uh, so I, I have dim hopes for the Nook, despite the fact from all the people I've heard who actually have a Nook that it's a pretty darn good little reader, you know, hardware-wise especially compared to uh, the, the software situation on the current crop of Kindles. My friend is telling me that, uh, that I must not have taken any number theory if I think uh, math uh, is the legitimate home to universal truth. So I still think it is. I don't, I don't understand what his point is. Nah, he can explain to me while I'm not, wrong. It's it, not. Yeah. There are people who disagree on math all the time. No, I think it is. It's it, it it's the one realm of universal truth because it, as he points out, it's completely arbitrary. It defines its own truth. It's completely abstract. I think math is great. I'm really glad we have it. Yeah, um, we have more than one of them if you're in England. <laughs> All right. Uh, Peter Bourgeois <laughs> uh, says that it's pronounced uh, Bourgeois. I don't know how it's pronounced. Uh, I think it's Bourgeois. Uh, says that he uh, agrees that Amazon has a lot of content, but that's only true in the U.S. And as usual, uh, this show is very U.S.-centric. <laughs> I really don't know much about the rest of the country or the other countries in the world. Uh, but he points out that uh, the Amazon's content outside the U.S. is really limited. Video is apparently U.S. only. Music is U.S. and U.K. only. And uh, electronic delivery of software are U.S. only. Mm -hmm. I didn't, didn't realize that Amazon was so incredibly limited to the U.S. And he was saying that the, uh, Apple is doing much better with uh, iTunes content. It's available in much more countries. I don't know if you've ever seen the maps that Horace has put up, but you know it's not universal. You can't get every single thing in, that Apple sells in every country, but it's much more widespread than, uh, than that description of Amazon. Uh, and that's interesting because 
uh, like you know China and other big markets around the world are just going up, up, up. And if Amazon, no matter what Amazon does, if they don't get their act together overseas, they're going to have some problems. So even though we just think that the U.S. market is all that matters, eventually it could be, for instance, that China is the biggest market for Apple's uh, products. I don't know if that's currently true, but someday it may be true. And if Amazon has nothing there, that's bad for them. All right, I got another name to do here. Ready? Eliyahu Ungar Sargon. Sargon? Oh, it's a nice last name. It's pronounced Sauron. No. Yes, it would be Sauron, though, actually. Uh, <laughs> you can see what a big Lord of the Rings fan yeah. I am. Yeah. He was the first person to point out what many other people also pointed out, that the Blue Ocean strategy I described in the last show yes. uh, about Nintendo is not something that Nintendo invented, uh, but was apparently a business strategy book first published in 2005. Uh from the Blue, Strat- Blue Ocean Strategy Institute. Uh, I think it was kind of like a compilation of things that they discovered in the past. So I have a link to this. You can look it up uh, in the show notes. Uh, and so, no, Nintendo did not invent that. They just simply latched onto it and adopted it for their own and made good use of it. So if you want to learn more about Blue Ocean Strategy, you can read the book. That does kind of put a damper on my uh, my theory that... Uh, they had picked a nature-based metaphor because all I know about Japanese culture is that they like haikus and they involve nature. <laughs> uh, what do we got next? Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do more gaming stuff in a bit, but I just don't want to do one more, one more follow-up on something that was... People on. would love it if you would just break down and do a gaming show. Uh, there'll be more gaming stuff on in the show. You'll see. All right. More we get a lot of those why you know do gaming show emails. Yeah, no, everyone wants everyone wants everything. I know. You, you gotta wait your turn. People who wanted gaming stuff had to wait a long time. People who wanted programming stuff had to wait. And everyone else is miserable during those topics. So <laughs> I can't please everybody every, all the time. So uh, I think it was the most recent uh, build and analyze. Marco was talking about, or maybe it was the after dark actually. Marco mentioned that he had seen a kid on the subway using an iPad. It looked like he was about like three years old. And he was describing how amazingly proficient this three-year-old kid was yeah. at using the iPad, mm-hmm. uh, turning a thing on, going to the video player, swiping over to the show he wanted, uh, scrubbing past all the crap in the beginning to get to the part of the show he wanted, watching it, uh, and then rewinding, and you know, just and with never a mistap and never any confusion and going through it. And uh, and Marco said he was just so incredibly impressed that this kid who you know looked to be about three years old was just completely proficient with this iPad, right? Uh, And when I heard that story, I think when most people hear that story, like the story works because you're like, wow, I, you know, I never imagined, uh, I never imagined that a kid that young could use an iPad or I got my parents an iPad and they still can't figure out what they (laughs) did with it. And this three-year-old figured it out. (laughs) Truly, you know, these children, this next generation of children are just amazing, right? But when I heard it, I thought, well, why are we, why are we impressed by the story? Why are we impressed by the fact that a three-year-old uses an iPad very well? The, the unspoken premise is that technology products are hard to use. Or, should, or, or almost should be hard to use. Somehow. Or computers are hard to use. Right. Like, cause that's the, the, for people who are adults now or older adults you know, in their 30s or whatever, it, the, and especially since we see other adults like our parents who have trouble using technology, we just assume computers, anything that, you know, is an iPad a computer? Whatever. Computers, general purpose computers are hard to use or technology is hard to use and it's hard to understand and people can't figure it out. So when we see a three-year-old do it, we're amazed, right? But if you had seen that same 
three-year-old on on the the horseless carriage uh <laughs> using a jack-in-the-box and it's like this kid was amazing he gave him the jack-in-the-box he would crank the handle around. <laughs> he would know based on the tune that the song was playing exactly when the thing was going to come out and he would slow down and then he would do the little last pop goes the weasel and the thing would come up and he'd know just how to push it back down and reset it and put the lid on and click the latch. No one's impressed by that, right? Because jack-in-the-boxes <laughs> are not hard to use. But computers, but computers are hard to use, right? And that's... Being impressed by a three-year-old using the iPad is... At once, the point of the iPad and missing the point of the iPad. Because the point of the iPad and that whole thing is that it's kind of a harbinger of a new age of technology that's not as hard to use as the old technology. Mm. So the, the, the Apple II was the first example of that, where you didn't have to do any soldering, right? There was no more punch cards. You didn't have to go to a giant room with mammoth pocket protectors and submit your cards. You didn't have to get a share of time on this big thing. It wasn't. It was something that an individual could have. They didn't have to build themselves. They had a keyboard, and you press the A key, and A appeared on the screen, and that was a big step up in usability from what we had before. And maybe the next one was the Mac, where there was no more command prompt silently waiting for you with its arms folded, waiting for correct input, right? And I think the iPhone and the iPad are the next the next stage in that. And this is just a slow progression to make computers not like they were before. And uh, something that we shouldn't be surprised that a three-year-old can use. Just like we're not surprised when a three-year-old can figure out a doorknob or a light switch or any other thing that's been around long enough that we accept that it doesn't have to be complicated. Driving a car. I don't know. Can can you think of some other examples? that Things that used to be complicated and used to have to have some expertise to do, but now we just assume that everybody can do. Like flying a plane. Who can't do that? No, it's still pretty complicated. Oh. Although someday, you know, we'll all be on flying them from the ground or they'll be pileless. Uh, <laughs> Will there be people in them? Yeah, uh, the people still got to get somewhere. No, so you're, uh, you're saying that we'll fly the planes from the ground with the people in them. That's right. Not just like a cargo plane. It'll, it'll probably be somebody just in case, but yeah, pileless drones. Uh, but yeah, so the, the iPad thing, that's that's what's so wonderful about the iPad is that it, it's, it's trying to, and maybe it, it gets back to my spatial finder things or whatever. And the, the, the iPad and the touchscreen are tapping into skills that we have uh, from, you know, for, from thousands and millions of years of evolution, uh, familiarity with the physical world. And to the degree that the, the piece of technology can model the physical world, we can take advantage of those skills that we we are predisposed to have. So the kid can use a jack-in-the-box because it's a physical object. And little kids, as they, as they develop, learn, you know, they, they exist in a 3D world. They learn how to manipulate objects in 3D space, uh, you know, with a sense of touch and, and you know, the conceptualizing the physicality of things and size and volume and all that stuff. So the iPad is two-dimensional, but, it, but it's a similar type of thing where if you can make scrolling and manipulating the items on the screen work like things do in the physical world, flick scrolling, stopping it with your finger, uh, you know, even stuff like pinch zooming, which doesn't really have a direct physical analog, but it's kind of, you know, as someone just mentioned in the chat room, uh, direct manipulation. Uh, The closer the device comes to modeling itself on, on the, on the attributes of the physical world, not the actual physical world, not skeuomorphism with like, it's got to look like an actual calculator on a desk or it's got to look like a paper calendar and stuff like that. But the, the properties of, of the things involved, that's what allows that three-year-old to figure this thing out so well and so quickly. 
because it's not like a new set of skills. It's a new thing the same way a new toy would be a new thing. But you figure out with this toy, when you push this button, this thing pops out, then you push that thing back in. And you know what I mean? And it, it, it's not a direct physical analog. It's not as if they feel like they have to move the current app out of the way to see the home screen. They understand when you hit the home button, the home screen appears, you know. But uh, the number of things you have to understand and the skills that you already have that it taps into is a much better fit for a three-year-old than putting a three-year-old in front of an Apple II, right? So if we saw a three-year-old rattling off stuff on an Apple II and like, you know, moving files around with the command line on a Unix machine or whatever, then we'd be very impressed. And I think that would be a more legitimate, uh, you know, to be impressed about that. But the iPad is, you know, it's, it's supposed to be Sierra. We're trying to do away with as much of that as we possibly can so that we won't be that impressed with uh, a three-year-old doing that. Hopefully, but it doesn't, I mean, I understand in the beginning of this, you said that's the point or that's missing the point, but I think it's also a demonstration of the point, right? I mean, that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like it's... Uh, we want... That's what we're trying to get away from. So we, we shouldn't be surprised, but on the other hand, we are surprised because those of us who have lived our entire lives with the, uh, under the premise that technology is hard to use. And in fact, I think that that premise itself is what makes, uh, for example, our parents have trouble with technology. Like, because there's there's so much built up sort of prejudice, like that, oh, technology is hard and they psych themselves out or they, they overthink it. You, you've seen this happen. Like, you just, it, there, there's so much that we know, so much built in knowledge that we have about technology and comfort with it that our, that our parents or uh, uh, people our age who aren't into technology don't have. And then when we put the iPad in front of them, they're like, oh, geez, this is that technology thing, right? This is the thing I can never figure out from, you know, all their, their history of their life of having trouble with PCs and stuff like that. So they're, they're already psyched out to use this thing. And then they, they, they're trying to think about it. Well, is this kind of like when I learned Windows 95 and I have to do this? No, that didn't work. Or whereas the, the three-year-old that doesn't have any baggage and they're just accepting it as is. And they're like, oh, this is just, this is very similar to the blocks that I play with, except that it's on a flat thing. For all they know, there's little pieces of paper underneath that glass moving around and they're actually moving them with their fingers, right? That would be a fun experiment to see uh, how interface responsiveness uh, affects a two or three year old's ability to successfully use an iPad or, you know, Android tablet or whatever. Because I would imagine that they would be even more sensitive to to indirection than adults because adults can figure out, oh, well, scrolling is scrolling, but it's a little laggy. Like tech nerds can see it's a little laggy. But would a kid not take longer to figure out that how flick scrolling works if there was that lag there, you know? Uh, so, so that that's the only point I wanted to make about the about the iPad kit is you know that's kind of the point, and I would hope that in a decade or two we don't find that impressive. That becomes as mundane as seeing a kid who's an expert at playing with a particularly complicated mechanical toy. You know what I mean? Do you think it'll take two decades to get to that? Yeah, well, it'll take. We will because two decades a- from now, you're saying that 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 kids being born now will be legal adults in that time. I, I think we will be more, we will continue to be impressed by kids using technology because we still come from that generation where technology was hard to use and mm-hmm. not able to use it. But when those, when that three-year-old has his own kids, I don't think he will be as impressed that his three-year-old can figure out an iPad. If he's like, I used an iPad when I was three, but who can't use an iPad, you know, whatever it's going to be called, who can't use a touch interface. That's like, you know, being impressed that someone, knows how to use a toaster oven or a dishwasher. So I used that when I was a kid. So what? He can use it. Of course he can use it, you know? So gaming. Back to gaming. Gaming. Uh, oh, let's, a, wait, let's do a sponsor. Okay. That way you can unplug your thing and get all, you know, Yep. resequenced or whatever it is you do to your... 
said over there, our first sponsor today is Shopify. I love Shopify, the internet's most elegant, customizable, and scalable hosted e-commerce platform. Remember back in the old days, you went to sell something online. Okay, I'm gonna, I'll build a store. I will build it. So you would write all the code. You can get a higher designer. Maybe you would try to design it. You'd build your own thing. You'd get an e-commerce system. So you'd go to your, your, your bank and tie in with them. So their systems, there was no, you know, even if there's PayPal, maybe you just use PayPal, but you're still building your own. This is, people still think about this, John. And I don't, I don't know if they realize that you don't have to do this. You can, if, if you want to sell something, whether it's uh, physical goods, electronic stuff, uh, you, you want to self-publish a book, it doesn't matter. You can use Shopify to do all of this stuff. You can make it look exactly the way you want using your own HTML and CSS or forget it. Don't design it at all. Use one of the more than 100 templates that they already have professionally designed waiting for you there in their uh, gallery. They have the PCI DSS compliance thing figured out. Uh, You can trust these guys. They're the best. So for a limited time, join Shopify. You'll get your first three months free. Use the discount code 5 by 5 of course. And uh, you go to Shopify and get set up. That's it. Shopify.com. It's a real-time follow-up from my wife, who's apparently listening live today. Uh, I love your wife so much. I hope she hears this. I hope she really is listening. She she was confirming that it was a piece of paper in Massachusetts that we got, and that she points out that I had a license in three states because I did live in Georgia for a few years. Uh, I can't imagine you there. That's weird. Oh yeah, no, it was not the place for me. Let me tell you. <laughs> where did you Where did you meet your wife? At, at school in Boston. But she had uh, did her master's at Georgia Tech, so we lived down there for a little while. Okay, I've done my time in the South. Fair answer. Uh, <laughs> Swilliams in the chat room uh, threw out a line that I thought thought looked familiar, and then he uh, confirmed where it was from. Where is it? I can't find it again. Because it was off the screen. Uh, you have to use your hands. That like that's like a baby's toy. Do you know what that's from? Did you already look in the chat room? I have not been looking at the chat room at all on purpose. There's a line from Back to the Future Two. Maybe that's what our kids will say, be saying. It's like you know, <laughs> what do you mean you have to use your hands to use the computer? It's like a baby's toy. <laughs> it's like an iPad. Jeez, you know, it'll, it'll all be you know neural implants or whatever. That's not going to happen for a while, sadly. But why would that be convenient? Have you tried? Speaking of gaming, have you tried the Microsoft Connect at all? I have not. Okay. I would like to try it though, but not so much that I'm going to buy an Xbox. <laughs> I thought maybe you had a colleague or friend who had one. Or no, no, your, I didn't even know kids, anybody. I didn't even know anybody who has an Xbox. It's kind of weird. Uh, you, by weird, you mean carefully planned. Yeah. Or I don't know anybody who has a Connect. I know people have Xbox. Mm. So gaming. Uh, I got a nice long email from somebody whose name I neglected to put in the show notes maybe it's because they didn't want to be named usually when i don't put their name in the notes it's because they don't want to be named but uh, it took me to task a little bit by not covering the many many nuances of the gaming history span of time that i touched on in my past show about uh, the history of nintendo and i wrote back trying to say yeah you know i simplified a lot i glossed over a lot Anyone who's a hardcore gaming fan who knows the history of gaming knows that it's much more complex and involved many more players uh, than were in my description of the last show. I was trying to to focus on one particular aspect of gaming history 
it was the most relevant to Apple with the whole Apple Nintendo thing and Blue Ocean and all that business. But there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, so again, I say if you're if you're interested in the history of gaming, that book I the uh, the book I recommended last time, Game Over, is just about the history of Nintendo. Uh, and even that alone is incredibly complicated. Uh, I don't know where to go if you wanted to say, like, where do I go to get the equivalent knowledge that you have gotten, that someone might have gotten growing up during the consoles war, console wars and reading every issue of Next Generation magazine or whatever the magazine of your choice is and, like, living through that time. Kind of like we all lived through, you know, the second... Uh, reign of steve jobs and we were reading every single website and we were, we were watching every single announcement live and we yep. you know right what it's hard to convey that knowledge or even like retell that knowledge right well gaming as i said is even more complicated with more players more drama uh more shifts in power more uh you know hardware products and, and differences in technology and it's just it's I, I don't know where you go to get that. I would say you start with the story of Nintendo. That will give you a, a one slice of it that you that you would at least know about. Then you know. Then you might be able to tell if you are interested in knowing more. But there is a lot more to know. Um, and so, the reason I was focusing on Nintendo and the Apple angle is because that that's the connection between Apple and gaming is even more relevant now. Now that Apple is sort of uh, falling ass backwards into handheld gaming. Uh, I thought there was a, uh, oh, I subscribed to Edge Magazine, which is my extremely expensive UK magazine that I used to replace Next Generation, which was my previous favorite gaming magazine, which went under many years ago. And it had a great cover on the current issue that shows a big shiny Apple logo and the word underneath it is Core Gaming, which is a joke or a reference that I would imagine a vanishingly small percentage of their readers get or understand. Or maybe it's not even intentional. It's got to be intentional. I, don't, I, can't, I can't imagine it not being intentional. What <laughs> I read it as is obviously this core and Apple core. So I suppose that could be what it is. But I read it knowing about core audio, core video, core foundation. You know, Someone who's familiar with Apple's uh, technology stack and framework naming convention with the core thing. I read it as, as you know, a core foundation joke, a core video joke, you know, core animation joke. Uh, which really, how many people are going to get that in a gaming magazine? And then... The title of the actual article, which is about Apple and gaming, is called An Accidental Empire, which is another super obscure reference to the uh, book by Robert X. Cringely called Accidental Empires with the subtitle, How the Boys of Silicon Valley Make Their Millions Battle Foreign Competition and Still Can't Get a Date. Such a horrible subtitle. <laughs> but he, it is Cringely after all. So links, to, and that's a story of, uh, well, you know, the subtitle pretty much explains it, but it was, it was a book published in 1996. Link to it in the show notes. Uh, and uh, that whole that whole sequence of that that cover that cover image that that cover title and that article title maybe it was like ten people in their entire readership <laughs> who I was I don't know if they have a lot of readers who are Apple fans. It's really a gaming magazine, and the fact that Apple is appearing at all and they have appeared in the past and continue to appear in the magazine is kind of like I don't know. I, I read it as kind of a grudging inclusion in a gaming magazine. It's like well. Well, folks, we've been writing about Sony, Microsoft, Nintendo, Sega, you know, every other company in the world. We can't, we have to write about Apple now. I know, I know there, you think of them as a PC company, but look at these numbers. There are are huge and growing power in the gaming space. iOS is not a gamer's device. There's no joystick. There's no buttons. There's no shoulder buttons. There's no anything. It's just a touch screen and a home button. 
but it's a huge gaming device, so we have to talk about it. And I don't think they're actually like reluctant to talk about it, but it is weird to see Apple covered in in a gaming magazine, uh, and the coverage just keeps going up and up. Um, and so that's why I thought that particular aspect of gaming uh, of uh, the gaming world was relevant because it had the closest connection to Apple's resurgence into uh, the gaming. Uh, not resurgence. I don't know what's the what's the single iteration of resurgence. <laughs> They're surgeons. No, no I, th- I think it's still a resurgence. They were never big in gaming. Uh, I, spe- I mean, Apple itself seems reluctant because you know Steve Jobs was famously against having games on the Mac because he was very aware of the reputation of the Mac as a toy computer. Because as we all know, only toy computers have mice, and the last thing you wanted on your computer that everyone's calling a toy is a bunch of games. And he just didn't seem to be into games, despite the fact that he worked for Atari for a while, was not a gamer, didn't appreciate games, didn't see them as a, as a viable media. And that's why I sell, say that Apple fell ass backwards into gaming because it was like, we're going to make this iOS device. And, you know, they, they put games in their iPods. You can play that poker game and stuff like that. But it's like, it's just some diversion for you to play with, like Solitaire on Windows, you know, just some little thing you can play with to amuse yourself. But third-party software developers had other plans and games became the, the biggest, most popular category in the App Store making tons of money and then apple itself started featuring them so you know what i guess one of the things that people really like to do with our ios devices is play games so let's start featuring that putting in the ads showing the ipod touch the funnest ipod ever with all those games and everything putting them in all the keynotes uh so it's not something that apple set out to do and historically apple has not been a friend to games or gamers but you know there you have it might talk more about apple's ios gaming ambitions or plans or lack thereof in another show, but I just wanted to touch on that in my uh, clarification that there's a lot more to know about gaming than I covered last time. One more follow-up from the last gaming show. Uh, I was talking about the name that's on the lips of parents uh, for the, the thing that's occupying their children's time to play video games with. Right. And with Atari being the first one, and uh, what was the next one? Nintendo, PlayStation, and then the uh, the current one is Xbox. And I mentioned that that was kind of weird because Xbox is not the best-selling current generation uh, console game. The Wii really dominated this generation of games. So why is it that Xbox gets the gets the nod there? Uh, and a bunch of people wrote in with theories, most of which I agree with. Uh, I didn't put down the names because... I just sort of put my own thoughts here and I'll just rattle them off. So then Xbox was the first next generation console released. So they had first mover advantage. Um, so you had, the, you know, before the PlayStation 3, before the Wii came out, the Xbox came out first. And that was a conscious strategy from Microsoft. They really, really wanted to be first to market. Uh, actually, this is the first Xbox, not the 360. Was, um, oh man, I should have looked this up on Wikipedia. Chat room, help me out here. Which one was both the first Xbox and the 360? The first of their generations to come out. The 360 was, but I don't remember what the first Xbox was. Oh, Did you, yeah. you have you ever had an Xbox? No, I apologize for for not having this in the notes. But uh, 360 definitely they had first mover advantage there, and I think Xbox, if not first, it was. Uh, nope, someone in the chat room says Xbox came out after yeah, the PS3, was... but it, uh, well, that, that that clarifies it for me. Thank you, S. William. So. Uh, PlayStation was the dominant name through the PlayStation and PlayStation 2 era. So despite the fact that the Xbox was around during the time of the PS2, PlayStation, the PlayStation name dominated because the PlayStation 2 totally dominated its generation of consoles. 
in the PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, and Wii era, which is the current generation of consoles, Xbox 360 did come out first. So it did have first mover advantage there. That's why I was confused because the Xbox was competing with the PS2, so it didn't become the name. So the Xbox really became the name in the current generation. Uh, and part of it was because it was the first one that came out. Uh, and the other part of it was that it was the new name. I mean, yeah, we had the Xbox before the 360, but the point is you'd had PlayStation for years. And when this other console came out and all the kids wanted this other thing, you know, like, oh, I really want it. Especially kids who only had one game console because they had to ask their parents. The new one is you got to get the 360 because the PlayStation 2 is great and all, but the 360 is, you know, high definition and it's brand new. And, you know, and despite the fact that the Xbox had already existed, it was not nearly as popular as the 360 would come to be. Because they sold a lot of 360s before their competitors rerun the market, and they continued to sell pretty well right up until the Wii burst onto the scene and kind of buried them. Uh, so the newness of the name, a difference, like the parents said, I thought you kids liked the PlayStation, or now they want this thing called Xbox, and that becomes the thing, right? <laughs> right. And so the, the first mover advantage in the, in the current generation and the newness of the name uh, is what uh, the parents would latch on to. And the Wii kind of had its time because that was another new name and it was odd and it's had its Christmas, but it was mostly on the lips of non-gamers because that was the target audience. Like, you know, your aunt can do bowling and you can play tennis and waggle your little remotes around and, oh, you got to get the Wii, blah, blah. But people who are talking about that are not the people who are saying, boy, that kid, I can't, you know, he's down there for hours playing with the Wii. They were not. They were saying he's just constantly, he's have his friends over and all they do is play Xbox all day. Uh, it's the parents scolding the kids who are just obsessively playing their their things and the kids who are obsessively playing these days to obsessively play basically means online multiplayer because that's where you can have essentially unlimited time spent you play through a single player game you finish the game you're probably pretty much done with it fighting games are a possible obsession where you have local multiplayer but online multiplayer is just infinite time suck you can play the same game online multiplayer for years and years and you'll witness world of warcraft right and so for online multiplayer played by teens with a lot of free time who like guns, blood, sex, all that stuff. Those things are not on the Wii. They're on the 360 and the PS3. Uh, and so the kids who are down there are constantly playing these games, playing Call of Duty with their friends, wearing the headset for hours and hours and hours on their console in front of the TV. They're on the Xbox. They weren't on the Wii. Uh, even today, I don't think there's a lot of people who are playing online multiplayer Wii games obsessively for long periods of time over the course of years and years, but they're de it's definitely still going on in the 360. So I think there are good explanations for why Xbox has become the name. And when we eventually get the next generation of stuff, it'll be interesting to see if Xbox holds on. I don't know what could, you know, what have we got on the, the Nintendo side? The Wii U which is not really changing its name. It's just adding a capital letter U to the end of it. I don't see that having a good chance to, to grab the name crown. Uh, Sony presumably will field a PlayStation 4, and I don't see us going back to PlayStation. So it could be that Xbox, the name, gets a whole other generation of, uh, of name recognition all to itself. Although I think the, the winner of that realm, the really popular with obsessive gamers, uh, television console game thing uh, owning that crown is becoming less and less important and less less significant to you know culture and the rest of the industry so it may not really matter if uh, xbox keeps it one more little thing on the wii so i don't remember if i talked about this maybe i did in the last one the wii hardware conundrum 
So what, what Nintendo did with the with the Wii, the Blue Ocean strategy, where they said, well, you know, specs are not important. What's important is making games for people who are not served by the current crop of games and consoles. Uh, and it's not so much that they they neglected specs, uh, uh, like, you know, because they didn't think they're important, but just because it, there was a trade-off. Like, if you if you use less powerful hardware, you can hit a lower price point. And if you're aiming for people who are not gamers, hitting a lower price point really helps because they have a harder time justifying a $300 outlay or $400 outlay for a high-definition next-generation console because they're not already invested in games. And they can't say, why would I spend X hundred dollars on a, on a PlayStation 3? I'm not into video games. That's I don't believe I can get that amount of value out of it, right? So by hitting a lower price point with the Wii and undercutting all the competitors, it was like, well, there's the, the PlayStation, the Xbox, and there's this Wii thing, which I hear is good for people who don't like games, and it's really cheap. So I have, you know, less of a barrier to entry to me as a casual person. So let's get that for the family. I see that I did over my friend's house at a party, and the ten- tennis game was fun. I'd like to try that. And it's only, whatever, 250 bucks or whatever. Although they, they did quite a uh, pricing trick on the Wii where the console itself was cheap, but the peripherals were... Not so cheap. So you get the Wii and one Wii mode. I think it came with an nunchuck or whatever. And if you wanted to get like four Wii motes for your entire family, they were like forty bucks each. And then all of a sudden, you start creeping up into the realm of uh, the Xbox 360 core system price. But you didn't notice because you paid once for the Wii, and then you just needed the accessories, and that like gets erased in your mind, right? You know, you're not adding it up and saying, "Geez, for the for the price of this fully outfitted Wii, I could have gotten an Xbox or a PlayStation 3." Pretty sneaky Nintendo. Uh, but so the hardware conundrum is. Well, first, let me review what the Wii hardware actually is. So they, they did the GameCube, which was competitive hardware-wise with its cro- with its uh, other consoles in its generation, the Xbox and the PlayStation 2. You can quibble over which had more power in which particular area, which had more memory, which had a you know, more powerful graphics card. Probably the Xbox had the best graphics overall, uh, and the PlayStation 2 probably the weakest with the GameCube somewhere in the middle, but it's kind of in the same ballpark, right? So, and Nintendo was still in the fight then, like, you know, they could, they could legitimately say, look at our game, look at our, you know, uh, Rogue Squadron game. What was the title of it? Rogue Leader? The, the GameCube I launch so. game? Yeah, yeah. GameCube Rogue Leader. They were, they were good graphics. You would have nothing to be ashamed about there. It was like, you know. They also had a Rogue looks, Squadron too, didn't they? They had many Rogue something games, and I can never remember the order they go in, but in, in most of them, you got to do the Battle of Hoth. That's uh, so, all, all that mattered. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and the and the graphics were pretty good, right? And so with the Wii, they said, "Well, we we decided what we're going to concentrate on: uh, this motion control thing, targeting new customers, not fighting the same battle in the red ocean with the other guys. We're going blue ocean strategy, but we do need to have some kind of hardware." Uh, so, and the other thing is, like, we don't. You know, the big problem with each new console generation is you have to convince a bunch of developers to get on board with your thing. And Nintendo has had a history of having problems with that, which is something else we could go into eventually. Uh, so I said, why don't we just take the GameCube hardware and see if we can make that like a little bit better, a little bit faster? So, what the Wii is is very close to a clock doubled GameCube with a little bit more memory and some flash and Wi Fi and other stuff built in. But it's very, very similar to the GameCube hardware. Now, the GameCube hardware was, you know, it was probably the best hardware you could get when it was introduced and still make a profit on the device at the price point the GameCube was fielded at. So it wasn't like state-of-the-art technology, but it's not as if you said, oh, Nintendo, 
you could have put in something that was twice as powerful as the GameCube and still sold your console for profit. You couldn't. It was state-of-the-art at the time it was developed, right? By the time the Wii came around, even a clock-doubled GameCube, you know, double, double the clock speed of the CPU and a little bit more memory and stuff like that, was just incredibly, pathetically not powerful compared to what you could buy for a similar price. And the money went into other things, obviously. The money went into the, the, the motion control stuff, the, the, the little sensor bar, the, uh, the, the Wiimote things, the Wi-Fi, and, you know, probably fatter profit margins, too, because I got to imagine those Wiis were pretty uh, cheap to build. Yeah. Uh, and, and the other thing that helped about it was that game developers, you could say, well, you've already got your production workflow for developing GameCube games. Well, developing Wii games is pretty much the same. You can use some more polygons because we're clock doubled. You can use some bigger textures. You have some more interesting choices with the flash memory that we have built in for permanent storage. Uh, and of course, you have the, the Wiimote and stuff like that. And that's what we want you to concentrate on, motion control, make new games that are interesting and differentiated from the other people. Uh, but you don't have to learn this whole big new thing, right? So the things that weren't important, it's like usually if, if specs are important, you're like, well, I know it's a whole new system with a whole new CPU, kind of like the PlayStation 3, and, and you're going to have to learn a whole bunch of new things, and you can't really reuse your game engines from the class game because it's really different. You really have to take advantage of this new cell CPU, and, right, but, the, but the payoff is these great graphics. But Nintendo was saying there is no big payoff for, uh, you know, there's no big graphical payoff. We want you to concentrate on how you can use motion control in an interesting manner and like the things that differentiate our console from other consoles but don't worry about having to learn some whole new CPU and API and everything. It's really just like a GameCube because that's not where you want you to concentrate. So it's an easier path you and, and for you. And also, the Wii plays GameCube games. Backwards compatibility, which has been an on-again, off-again thing with console makers for a while where they, they like to have it because it makes fans, uh, people who bought a lot of games for their previous console, not feel like they're losing their investment. Uh, but on the other hand, at a certain point, they're like, oh, who would want to play those old games anyway? So they usually drop backward compatibility. Like PlayStation did that. Or the PlayStation 3 originally could play... PlayStation 3 originally could play PlayStation 2 games, and then eventually they said, you know what? Who really wants to play PlayStation 2 games anymore? We'll drop that. So the Wii can play GameCube games. And why can it play GameCube games? Well, you just have the clock speed, and there's very little that needs to be done to convince that GameCube game that it's playing at a GameCube. I mean, the Wii has GameCube controller ports all along the side of it. It's got slot for GameCube memory cards. It is basically a GameCube and a Wii all in one device because the hardware is basically the same. Now, the conundrum is, so that's fine for the Wii. Uh, you've, you've won this generation. You sold a lot of them. You did this motion control thing that everyone else followed on or whatever. What is your strategy going forward? What do you do? Like, now you're basically a generation behind. You're not even in a high-definition console. Right. What do you do for your next console? Do you say, uh, it's still a GameCube? Like, same CPU, same, eventually it becomes embarrassing. Like you can't, you can't just keep the same hardware forever, you know. And that, that keep was keep it for mystery. why not? Well, that, I mean, that's that's the thing. Some people say, "Oh, it's good enough," and you know, from I think the very first show, or maybe it was on the pipeline interview that you did with me, how I feel about people say graphics are good enough. Yeah, they don't need to get as that is a ridiculous statement. It's totally, totally ridiculous. Well, well it, you know, but there, I'm sure that there are people who would argue that there is a certain point at which if you can enjoy something and have fun with it, that that by definition is good enough. I mean, look, we reminisce a lot about the old games we used to play. And obviously, I mean, and I, I know that nobody will disagree with me when I say that Yeah, our Kung Fu was the best arcade game. And at that point, it, it became impossible for any other game to ever be more fun 
than that game. That was it. And it stopped right. there. Everything else is actually a little bit downhill from there. No one can argue that. So, I have that wrong, by the way. Do you? Please send that over. Yes. And, uh, you know, perfect music, perfect gameplay. Anyway, I could go on. The, the point is this. In reality, you get to a certain point where if something is fun, does it matter that the graphics aren't amazing or, or great? I mean, there's these silly little games that my kid will play on the iPad that are very simplistic, but he has more fun with those than the super advanced driving racing game, whatever. And it's not because he can't play them both. It's because one of them is just there's whatever that fun factor is, you know, and, and you would look at the Nintendo games and you'd say, man, I have so much more fun playing Mario or Mario, as you say, uh, compared to this other, you know, space game or shooting game or whatever uh, that, you know, it's the fun factor. And that's what Nintendo was always known for. The fun factor. It didn't need to have the best graphics. It didn't even need to have in some cases, great graphics because it was fun to play. You knew what was going on. That was good enough. So there's two separate issues there. One is, can, can you have fun with things that don't look as good as the best available technology could make them look? And that's certainly true. We all know that. There, As you pointed out, there are old games that are fun that continue to be fun. And I think as I've talked about in other shows, I've had my son play some very old games, uh, you know, think GameCube games, sure. uh, stuff that don't have great, and he and he loves them. He thinks they're great. Doesn't even know it's the graphics are bad. So that I think everyone agrees on that. And maybe maybe some people don't. Maybe people think, oh, if they're snobs, I can't play Mario sixty four anymore. And yes, I do say Mario. I'm sorry, people. I'm it's, pretty I, sure. I don't think a, it's I'm a pretty problem. sure it's a Long Island, New York thing. It's just how I say it. I, I don't could, see it as a bad thing. If I I, I I hadn't known this was part of my speech until it was pointed out to me so i i think it's a new york thing or maybe it's just a me thing i new think york it may it may you may be able to say a whole northeastern thing because my family none of whom are from new york they're all from philadelphia and pittsburgh they say mario yeah i don't know it just comes out that way sometimes in certain contexts i like uh, it and i think you should run with it all right so anyway that you know that you can have fun with those games but the question is the, the, the question we're talking about here is not whether you can have fun with games that don't look particularly good, but whether there is any reason to continue to improve hardware. Because that's what you're asking. You're saying, well, you know, should we make... What should we do? Should we just keep the Wii the way it is? Should we do a, a clock-tripled GameCube? Say, oh, it's like, you know, a little tiny bit uh, better? You know what I mean? And the question there is, well, so is it worth? Is it worthwhile? Is, is it worthwhile to to update the graphics to be... Uh, generationally better versus just some sort of incremental thing. Is there any return on that investment? Is there any reason to do it? And the thing that burns me is when people say, they usually say it in the future because they don't want to say it now. They say, well, in a couple of years, graphics will be as good as they ever need to be. And so it won't matter anymore. And people will be able to concentrate on gameplay. And they've been saying that same thing since the Voodoo 3D card in 1990, whatever. Like, oh, well, now that we have, you know, GL Quake, really graphics don't need to get any better. Now finally they can concentrate on gameplay. Yeah. Right. There will always be, for all of our lives listening to this show, a very worthwhile return on keeping up with the best available technology at a particular price point. Uh, and the reverse of that is that I don't think it will be worthwhile to, for example, continue to make Wii caliber hardware and just drive the price down, 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 down until it's a USB thumb drive the size of a quarter that you plug into the back of your TV and it still has Wii graphics, but it costs 99 cents and it comes in a cereal box, right? I think there'll probably be a place for that type of device, but 
it won't be the place currently occupied by the Wii or the PlayStation 3 or anything like that. Uh, and I think that comes out where, so the Wii, you can get away with a standard def console in a generation where everyone else had high def if you have other attributes that, to separate you. But for the next generation, could, could Nintendo continue to get away with a non-high def console? But Nintendo's answer is apparently no. Because the Wii U was announced as high, high definition graphics in addition to a bunch of other stuff that are supposed to differentiate it with the weird controller with a screen on it. And all sorts of other things we're not going to get into now. But Nintendo has basically agreed that, no, we can't. We, we, took, we took a generation off. We can't continue to do that, right? Uh, and it's not just the technology reason. But it's like if you're a game designer at Nintendo, you'd be, like, you'd be looking at the 360 and PS3 games going, boy, those look really good. Boy, can you imagine what kind of Zelda game we could get if we had those graphics? Like Skyward Sword looks good and everything, but... But boy, it would be nice to be able to do that because those games look really, really nice. And I wish I wish I had that to play with. If you're an artist or something, uh, a graphic artist or a, a game designer, uh, you want the, the the new shiny toys to play with. Because you can imagine, boy, if I if I could have a, a, a open world that big with that many characters in it and support all that, uh, that would make for a very different gameplay experience. It's not just like how things look. It's like how many things can you have on screen? How far are your draw distances? What things are even possible to do? Uh, in terms of gameplay, uh, so the Wii the Wii U supposedly is PS3 caliber power. So it's interesting that Nintendo has decided not to still be a generation behind, but that's about as far behind as they want to be. They don't want to be two generations behind, three generations behind, and arguably the PS3 is incredibly weak and anemic compared to like the video card that comes in. You know, at, at this point, people are saying that an iPhone will be more powerful than a PS3 shortly. Right, so the, the PS3 is not the powerhouse that it was when it was, you know, first announced, and even then, it was far behind PC gaming. So, Nintendo, Nintendo's answer is we we can't be that far behind. We have to we have to do something to sort of keep up, uh, and maybe that's maybe that's like the sweet spot for them to be like one generation behind its competitors and use the difference in uh, use the money they save to. Invest in new control schemes uh, or other things to differentiate themselves, and and figure they can get by looking like a previous generation uh, console. But now here's here's the other aspect of of uh, Nintendo's hardware choices of being behind that has really really hurt them with the Wii, and I think will probably continue to hurt them with the Wii U and possibly uh, more so. So now wait before you say yes, this is the ultimate time for us to drop a second sponsor. All right, because you're you're about to lay this this big thing on us. It's not that big, but oh no! Right. It's it's see, see, you don't you don't know how to get people excited. I I only know how to undercut excitement. I only no, know that's terrible. Enthusiasm. Ta- shame on you. Yeah, Mailchimp.com. I'll make it short. Uh, Mailchimp.com. Easy email newsletters. Design newsletters. Share them on social networks. Integrate with services you already use and track your results. That's the big thing. They have awesome analytics in there. Twelve thousand emails a month. Every month forever and they've got great resources there you never sent the newsletter before they'll explain to you not obviously how it works they they handle all that but how do you write a newsletter that's not going to get uh trapped up in spam because of content how do you write a newsletter that's going to look good whether it's sent as plain text or whether it comes out as html how do you make it look beautiful they've got the guides they've got the guides that's their new slogan for 2012 mailchimp.com we've got the guides so go check them out That's it. You already ready to lay it on us? Yeah. 
So in the in the GameCube generation of consoles, Nintendo didn't sell a lot of GameCubes. And do you have the, any numbers? Do you know how many they sold? No, I, I had a, I had a graph that I saw when I was researching this, but I didn't save the graph. But mm. it just showed, it doesn't look at the numbers on the bars. But uh, yeah, the, the GameCube did not sell a lot. And Nintendo sixty four sold more than the GameCube, which is depressing uh, over the lifetime of the console, I believe. And the console market by the time of the GameCube, uh, uh, there were a few third party franchises that were particularly important. Uh, there were exclusives, obviously Mario and Zelda were only on uh, Nintendo, and there were some Sony exclusives. Uh, I think around then Final Fantasy was still exclusive to to Sony. Oh, by the way, I, I have them here. GameCube sales figures. It's it, it's very detailed. It's a very detailed chart. Uh, so I will just put this in the show notes. People who want to follow along at home, you can go to five by five TV slash hypercritical slash forty nine, and all of the links and things that we mentioned in in the show, including these incredibly detailed. A GameCube sales figures will be there. Thanks very much to uh, the lovely ladies at HelpSpot.com for making the show possible. The best darn help desk software ever. So for the very popular third-party franchises that were on multiple platforms, you, you wanted to have those in your platform. Like you wanted there to be the Madden game for your platform because uh, if someone bought your console... It's like an anchor tenant in, in the mall. You've gotta, you, you're not going to the mall unless they've got... The Gap right. or the Apple Store, whatever it is. Right. I mean, gamers understood there were exclusives, but then there were the games that were on every platform. And if the games that were on every platform were not on your platform or were on your platform later, your platform was looked down upon. And and the companies like EA or other big third-party uh, developers, uh, what's the other, Ubisoft, all sorts of things, they, they've made, they made games for multiple consoles, didn't have a particular allegiance to one or the other. They have to prioritize their work. Uh, they would say, well, you know, we should really make this game for the most popular, uh, the the one the console that has sold the most units uh, first. That's our priority because we'll launch with a big opening or whatever. And uh, if we have to choose one to launch on first, that's the one we'll pick. Obviously, they would idea in an ideal world they said we could launch on all three at once and do one big PR push. Right. Uh, but the economics being the way they are, sometimes you have to concentrate on one or the other. And sometimes you can extract a deal from one of the people to let it be exclusive for two months or something like that. And the one you would want to be exclusive on for two months is obviously the one with the most copies because you get the special, you get the extra money for being exclusive and you get to launch on, on the biggest of the three that are out there, right? Uh, and the GameCube didn't get a lot of the games that were available on, on the PlayStation 3 and even some games that were also available on the Xbox. Xbox had a hard, uh, or, yeah, in the PlayStation 2, rather. Uh, Xbox had a hard time, too, attracting developers to it and it had a bunch of exclusives and stuff like that. But really, it was the PlayStation two in that era that was getting the majority of them. And it wasn't because the GameCube couldn't run those games. In some cases it was because they couldn't store it on their little GameCube discs or whatever, but the graphical power was there at least. So really that was kind of a business situation. Uh, if Nintendo could sell more GameCubes and if Nintendo could do better business deals, it could, it could play host to the most popular games of that generation. It was just a matter of convincing those third party developers we're, we're going to sell more GameCubes or, you know, do this deal with us. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll it, it was it was feasible, but they just didn't sell enough GameCubes and it just didn't, didn't happen. And there was, you know, a variety of factors that were preventing the big franchises from being available on the GameCube, which made that thing look like a lesser thing. So it looked like a lesser console in the eyes of gamers. And when the Wii came out, it seems like they would have all the same problems. 
But they had a worse problem, which was that even even if you could sell a whole lot of GameCubes or a whole lot of Wii's, which they did, so they could go to the how look at this, we came out with this Wii thing. You thought it was going to be crap, but we're selling a ton of these things. Look how many of these things we sold. <laughs> look how many we sold this Christmas. You want your game to come out? You want to launch on the biggest platform? Or we are the biggest platform. We have sold more Wii's than they've sold PS3s, more Wii's and Xbox 360, which launched like a year and a half before us. You know, that's a, big, a strong card to go to the third party developers with. And so Nintendo can finally go to them and say, we, we did, couldn't do it before the N64 because of the cartridges. And in the GameCube, yeah, we had those little skinny discs or whatever. Uh, and we didn't sell a lot of them. So we understand why you didn't make it for the GameCube. We understand why you couldn't do the deal with those on Nintendo. But this is, this is a new generation. This is, you know, a, a new CEO. We are the dominant player in this platform. Now bring your awesome games to our platform so that we may sell even more things and just be the overwhelmingly dominant console maker of this generation. Uh, but of course, they couldn't say that because those game developers could not bring their flagship franchises to the Wii because the Wii was a clock-doubled GameCube. They said, well, that's great and all, but the latest version of Madden, like the whole big deal with it is we've got these awesome graphics and new animation system. And this, you know, all these things that we think are, are, are great about the new Madden, but you can't run this on an overclocked GameCube. It's not, you, all our graphics are high definition. You're not even high definition. Right, you, you can't even fit it. You know, we're barely fitting it on on uh, an Xbox 360 disc, and your discs don't even hold that much. Uh, and on the Sony, we're filling up a whole Blu-ray, and you've just got these little. Uh, I think what is the uh, we use just DVD size things, four yeah. gigs. Yeah. You know, your hardware simply cannot support this game that we've made <laughs> because we are making a next generation game, and you literally cannot run it. And then Nintendo would say, well. Can you cut it down? Can you can you like lower res, make everything standard res textures and reduce the number of polygons? And it's like, geez, I don't know, maybe, kind of. I don't know, I guess we'll try it. And what you end up with, if you end up with anything at all, is some horrible, horrible looking game. People complain about I say horrible. How I say horrible? Oh, I like it. It's, it's very yeah. charming. Horrible looking game that just looks smeary and gross and doesn't have all the advantages that, you know, because this game was designed to be a next generation game. I say, why would people like this game better than our previous Madden? Well, because it's got X, Y, and Z. If you eliminate all of X, Y, and Z, now it's just a really ugly, bad playing version of Madden uh, or any other game. Madden's a probably bad example. Call of Duty. There were some Call of Duties brought over to, to the Wii. I think they brought over some Call of Duties from the PlayStation 2 era onto the Wii instead of bringing the current, you know, and eventually the, the third party developers just said, look, we can't, we can't do this with the Wii. Either we can develop games exclusively for the Wii, tailored to its, its limitations, uh, or we cannot bring anything at all. But we have to make next-generation games. We're going to make you know, our PlayStation 3 titles, their Xbox 360 titles, and they have to be next-generation games with high-definition graphics and engines that can, and AI and pathfinding and everything that can only run on a next-generation console that's twice as powerful as that the Wii is. So you're just not going to get those games. So Nintendo managed to become the top selling console in this generation, but still couldn't get the third party developers onto its platform because the strategy that, that let it be dominant, a low priced console that a lot of people uh, are willing to buy and that appeals to non gamers is exactly the same thing that prevented it from physically being able to run the awesome new games of this generation. Uh, and that's where the term shovelware comes from. <laughs> what we did get was a lot of shovelware. Uh, I don't know what the people will say the technical definition of shovelware is, but Basically, since the Wii did sell so many copies, people did have dollar signs in their eyes, kind of like they did in the Atari era. They're like, boy, there's a lot of those Wiis out yeah, there. Yeah, you got to think we, about all that. Those those people sitting in front of those Wiis. If we could just get something on there. Yeah, what can, we, what can we do? 
what can we do? Oh, we have this really old game. If we do some crappy port of it, we can put it on there as like a, you know, a previous generation game or just do take this engine, slap some stuff on it or make like a movie tie in game. Some, you know, just do something because there are parents out there looking for games for their Wii. So let's make this $20 Hello Kitty game. That's a piece of crap. And, you know, pay some people to make it for us. And we don't care if it's good or not. We'll just throw it out there. But some mom is going to be in there and say, well, we've got the Wii. What is this Wii game? All right. Hello Kitty. People like that. Here you go. You know, so you had what you had on the Wii was lots and lots of really bad ports of really old games or lots and lots of really bad games, period. They were de- designed specifically to cash in on the fact that there were a lot of Wiis. These games didn't appear on any other platform because who the heck would make a standard definition game with these horrible graphics for any other platform? Sometimes they did, but sometimes they screwed. We're making we're making a horrible looking game and we'll just up-res everything to HD, but not not increase the resolution of the textures and not increase the number of polygons, and you can get the same Hello Kitty game on your Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3. I don't, I don't know if that happens a lot, but the, if you go into the Wii software section, it was depressingly similar to the N64 software section and the GameCube software section, where there's awesome AAA, as they call them, AAA titles from Nintendo that were just everything you can imagine that they would be, you know, best-of-class games on any platform available anywhere. And then there were a bunch of really bad third-party games. You know, the dregs, the things you're not interested in. <laughs> and if you wanted the big franchises, you wanted Mass Effect? No, sorry, no Mass Effect for the Wii. Is there a Mass Effect for the Wii? I'm trying to think of examples off the top of my head, but yeah. If you wanted the latest Call of Duty? No, you can get older Call of Duty, but not the latest one. If you want Battlefield 3? No, sorry, no, you can't get that for the Wii. You know, or anything you could think of that are the popular big games that are available on consoles and PCs for that matter. And you say, is it available on the Wii? People don't even ask anymore. It's like, that can't run on the Wii. Are you kidding? And that was the same thing with N64. You know, Final Fantasy VII is that? Well, that's an exclusive. But, you know, even even things like the, the latest Madden. The latest Madden's coming out. It's coming out for the, the you know, the, the PlayStation. Uh, is there N64 version? Uh, not right away or possibly not at all. Or there's a crappy version that bears no relation to the PlayStation version. Yeah. So this is the this is the inherent problem with uh, with... Nintendo's various strategies to be successful. All of them seem to leave it in a situation where there are great first-party games, but they can't get the bulk of the third-party games onto their platform for one reason or another. And that's kind of depressing. And so with the Wii U, even though I'm excited that it's not going to be a clock-tripled GameCube, it's still depressing in that, you know, when they make the new version of Madden, which I keep using as my example, maybe there's probably a better one chat room can give me, for the PlayStation 4 and the Xbox 720, you know, it, it, what are they going to do for the Wii U? Uh, well, I guess we can port the version that we did for the PS3 because your console is about as powerful as the PS3. So here you go. Uh, that's kind of sad. So I kind of wish I could have my cake and eat it too. Have a game console with very interesting input schemes and innovative gameplay. You know, uh, obviously the Microsoft and Sony have since copied motion control from Nintendo and they've each done their own thing. PlayStation's got the move. Microsoft's got the connect, which is innovative in its own way. Uh, but they were, they were reacting to Nintendo's move, right? So I would like someone to be the, the first mover and also have good hardware and also have good third, third party support. And we haven't had that since the PlayStation two and the PlayStation two was uh, the dominant console had the great games, had third-party support, had great first-party games or, you know, exclusive games. Uh, but Nintendo so far has not been able to get that victory. I spent too long on that because I have this whole other rant that I want to get to. Do you have time? Yep. Always have time for, for John Syracuse. All right. Always have time. Yeah, I, 
I should probably talk more on another show about uh, where Nintendo can go from here and more about the possibility of them going software only, which we kind of talked about in the last mm-hmm. show. But today, to finish this out, I want to talk about controllers. Did you look at the show notes? You must have looked at them. Yes. Do you see the long list of links to Wikipedia images of game controllers? It's a fascinating collection. By the way, I fixed that bug that you always, the bookmarklet bug. Which one was that? The one where you would add a link and it would screw everything up. All right. Well, I haven't hit that in a while. Uh, Yeah. Well, I I fixed it. It's good that you finally fixed that. I would have filed it in your bug tracking system. Yeah. There's uh, just to give people a little taste um, of what we're talking about here. NES controller. Uh, Super NES, PlayStation, Nintendo 64, PlayStation, DualShock, GameCube, PlayStation 2, DualShock, 2 controller, Xbox, Xbox controller, S. The list goes on. And I said, I guess we're going to be talking about controllers a little bit. Yeah. So for the people, if you're a gamer, you don't need to see these images because you know what all these controllers look like, right? These are great pictures. I had no idea that Wikipedia had. Yeah. Thank God. Because I was like, oh, I got to do a Google image search for these. <laughs> but Wikipedia's got awesome images of all nice, big and high res. So if you're, if you're not a gamer... Uh, you can probably just type the the name of these things into a Wikipedia search box and click on the little image and get the high-res image uh, in real time and look at it. And if you're listening to the show recorded, just pause it now and uh, go to the show notes and just click on all those links yeah. and open them all in tabs. All right. I want to talk about controller design, the thing that's in your hands when you are playing a console, mm-hmm. a, a game console, and the evolution thereof. And I have a specific axe to grind with a specific thing. And anybody who has had any contact to me online and discussed games or game controllers already knows what this is going to be. So I'm sorry to bore the five people uh, who have heard me complain about this at length for years. Now, now other people will hear about me complaining about it at length, but only on this one show. So let's start with the NES controller. You're, on the, you're looking at that picture? I have it, you, uh, have it right here. You don't have to look at that. You know what that looks like. Right? I do, but I'm, I've got them all open up, all in tabs, ready to go. Yeah. So you spent you spent quality time as a kid with that control in your hands. Couldn't couldn't I? I think my hands have such a deep muscle memory for this thing that whenever I have a new controller, my brain is remapping it to this controller. Yeah. This is for those that you know. Again, radio theater of the mind. Let me describe it for those who don't intimately know it. You're talking about a slightly grayish white, I guess it's kind of grayish white, uh, rectangle. It uh, You hold it with both your hands. It's got the little, uh, I'm sure there's a name for this, uh, for the pad. What do they call that? Four position. D-pad. D-pad. It's got a select button, a start button, and an A and a B button on the right. Uh, the, the top of the controller itself is black. Well, it's got a black sort of laminated piece of plastic, which you could peel off, and it's stuck to the top of it. There's a little sort of gray stripes going down the middle where the select and start buttons are and the black cable running off to the side. And uh, this is this is sort of the controller that most of us started out with if uh, if we even even if you look at the Atari joystick, this is this is a controller. This was different. And this the little thing revolutionized gameplay. Yeah, so the Atari controller, 2600 controller, which I didn't include in this thing, was I considered that a separate thing. But yeah. that was the thing we'd use before this. That was a big, long stick sticking up in one red button in the, in the corner of the thing that you could use. This was a different model where you're holding a thing in your hand and using your thumbs. And I think that was the big shift from gripping a joystick like you did in an arcade to using your thumbs and fingers. And yeah. my question for you is, 
why does the NES, NES controller look like that? Uh, you know, you, you could, you, you're asking me, did Nintendo do research and testing to come up with this or what? Mainly I'm asking, uh, ignoring, uh, assume they, they decided they wanted to use like something with your thumbs instead of with your hand grip. Right. right? So it's the time. And assuming they, the, the directional pad is a given, right? They decided having a little cross shaped piece of plastic that you could push up down left, right was the way to go. And some buttons It's great. Why, why is the, the NES controller uh, a plastic rectangle? I have no, I, I have no idea. So you could fit, you know, because it's, un, it's uncomfortable. I think this is where you're going with it. It's not a comfortable thing to hold for any length of time. Yeah. Now. So I don't know why, maybe because this is, this is what their manufacturing <laughs> group said they could shape it like to get it out the door. I don't know yeah. why. So Do you know, I, I, I don't know the answer. If I had to venture a guess, I would say a couple things. First, uh, you know, it, rectangles are a shape that manufacturers know how to make. I mean, the NES itself is a rectangle, right? Uh, it's probably cheaper to make something or rectangular. It has a lot of, you know, if you're going to put a circuit board inside, circuit boards are wide and flat. You can make, and they're usually rectangular. So you're going to have a rectangular circuit board. And, you know, to make a rectangular plastic thing, it's just, I don't even know if it's it's cheaper, cheaper or what the cost difference is, but it's just like, it's it's the first thing that would occur to in the mind of someone making a plastic toy that doesn't have any other particular shape. It's not shaped like a car. It's not a toy. It's a, it's a controller, right? I mean, even the Atari joystick, the base of it was a square, uh, you know, a plastic square with the joystick sticking out of it. Uh, but what, what I want to get at is that it's not a rectangle because someone decided that that was the shape it ought, something that you hold in your hands ought to be rectangular. That's what I'm getting at, basically. Uh, and, you know, at some point, the Game & Watch was rectangular. Uh, television remotes initially were rectangular. The same reason. Why, why were television remotes initially rectangular instead of being shaped like the peanut for, that's used with the, the TiVo or anything like that? Because when it came time to make these things, it never entered the mind of the designer to think about what would be comfortable to hold for long periods of time under incredible stress uh, in many cases. Right? And it's not as if the, it was entirely absent from their mind, because if you look at the surface of the buttons, I don't remember, I can't tell in the picture, but were the, were the surface of the NES buttons concave or convex or completely flat? I believe they were concave. They were like, concave. Right? I, I, I know it for sure. Yeah, because you feel the edges digging into your thumb if you just right. do think, think back to it, right? Yeah. And the same thing with the D-pad. I think it also had a little dip in the middle. Where, yes, it did. Absolutely. Right? And, and so, I, I remember because there were even little things that you could position on top of the D-pad you remember what I'm saying that that would make use of that, like other yeah. controllers that could make it like a joystick, other things like yep, that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And so it's obvious that someone somewhere thought a little bit about this because making the buttons completely flat is more obvious than making them concave or convex. But both of those choices have to do with how it might feel on your finger and the same thing with the dents in the thing. All right. And so any of us who spent a long time playing with the NES controller know that it is not, in fact, the most comfortable thing in the world. It's pretty horrible. And, I mean, it's indestructible for the most part, but it's horrible. Yeah. That's another reason why, you know, if you were to make something a different shape, could you make it as sturdy and stuff like that? All right, so let's move on to SNES. All right, I'm ready. Uh, SNES controller looks very similar to the NES controller, only instead of being a rectangle, you can imagine, take a rectangle and take two big circles that are slightly taller than the rectangle and superimpose them on the left and right edges. So it's going to be semicircular on the left, semicircular on the right. On the bottom, there's like little humps on the top. It's flat. Right. Still got your D-pad. A little bit different, still indented, kind of. 
but it wasn't for those of us who had been playing the NES for for a few million hours. This was like, oh, there's a couple extra buttons and it's more comfortable. Yeah, they had they doubled the number of buttons. So you had X and Y and A and B. Uh, the start and select buttons are on an angle, and the reason they're on an angle is they're on the same angle as the X and Y, A and B pair. So here <laughs> we have a, a little bit more thinking about hands. First of all. The rectangular edges are gone, and I have to believe that's because they had a generation of knowledge of people using the NES that the thing digs into your hands. So, all right, so round it over, right? So it's not, doesn't dig into your hands quite as much, or at least doesn't dig into your hands in the same way. And when they wanted to double the number of buttons, <laughs> rather than taking A and B and like putting C and D to the left of it or above it or whatever, they said, no, let's rearrange these buttons. Because we can kind of think about how your thumb sort of comes over the top of the controller and see. When you move your thumb, what is the range of motion of your thumb? Where does it reach? So going from A to B, like that's kind of in, if you can imagine an arc with the sweep of your thumb, that arc kind of covers the A and B, so the angle they're at. Again, it's hard to, hard to describe this. You're, you should be looking at these images now when you're listening to the show. If you're listening when you're commuting, I really hope you remember what the SNES controller looks like. But if you don't, you can go back and look at this image after you get home. Yeah, don't, get in a, and, don't get in a car accident on our behest. And the X and the Y button are in a similar sweep, uh, you know, back and forth but above it. Now, they're not actually on a, a, a radial path. The, you could draw a straight line through the A and the B button, the centers of the A and the B button. You can draw a straight line through the centers of the X and the Y button. Uh, there's no, well, it's, of course, you can always draw a straight line even if they're on a radial path. Sorry. If you can imagine there was three buttons, the third one would also be on a straight line. Like the, the little background graphics behind them show them to be in straight sequence. Really, there's no difference because there's only two items. But the point I'm trying to get at is industrial, the the sense of industrial design of wanting things to be at right angles to each other, or at least in straight lines still exists in the little gray background that appears behind the buttons. They look like it, it's like they're little straight sections. Do you see that on the image there? though that little paint is not in a curved shape. So right. although the placement of the button acknowledges the fact that your thumb is pivoting from a single point, the graphic design is back into the, indu- the land of industrial design. Uh, and the D-pad is still more or less the same. And the start and select buttons, which you rarely ever touch, are on an angle just because of, you know, design wise. Right. Let's go to the PlayStation controller, the original PlayStation controller, the PlayStation 1 controller. Right? I never, for the record, this is going to, this is where things are going to fall apart. I never had a PlayStation. That's okay. Or, or a PS2 or 3. Well, no, I had a 2 and a 3. Uh, so, uh, do you remember this controller looking at the picture? I do. I, I mean, I, you know, I, I had friends that had them, but. So here's Sony entering the market for game consoles. And if you look at this controller and flip back and forth between this and the NES controller, you can see some resemblance there. The, 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 the PlayStation 1 controller looks a lot like if you took a, a Super Nintendo controller and made these little horns spout from the bottom of it. Right. They actually acknowledge that you have a hand. Yeah. So you, have now, a, you have a hand that is going to grip something and this sort of positions your thumb in the leadership role. Yeah. And so now, it, instead of having to, like, pinch this little wafer, pinch this little harmonica, you know, the, the SNES, uh, the, yeah, all right, there you go, there's a title for you, pinch the harmonica, pinch the wafer, I don't like either one of those as a title, but, uh, oh, yeah. too bad, <laughs> pinch a loaf, all right, so, <laughs> that's <laughs> what I was hoping you would say, yeah. and you, you got, said it, so it's in contention, yeah, so now you've got <laughs> this thing for you to hold with your pinky ring finger and middle finger, or however many fingers fit on those little horns off the bottom, right. and your thumbs are now Poised over the same place they were poised before, but you got more of a thing to grip. You got something to hold on to. Uh, now, what have they done now? They couldn't do the D-pad because of like patent infringement lawsuit stuff. So instead, they have four separate buttons. But their four separate buttons are arranged in the exact arrangement of a D-pad. Up, down, left, right. All right? That is just right 
out of the Nintendo playbook, if you look at the, the NES and the SNES controller, the PlayStation controller, is it's the same exact thing. On the right side, you see the arrangement of the buttons. Uh, it's basically a very similar arrangement to the SNES. There are four buttons arranged in, in, a, in a diamond pattern, but the diamond, like, this is partially because of the graphic design, but also because of the placement. If you go back to the SNES controller, you can see the diamond on the SNES controller that's made up from, if you join the centers of the four buttons. It's not a square turned 45 degrees. It's a squashed, it's a squashed diamond. Right, right. right. Difference between up the X button and down the B button is shorter than difference between Y and A, the right and left buttons. But on the PlayStation controller, it is like a reflection of the D-pad. There is an up button, there's a button on top of the cross, there's a button on the bottom, the button on the left, and the button on the right, and they are an exact cross. And they have shapes on them to differentiate them. You got triangle up, square to your, uh, circle to your right, square to your left, and X down. Uh, so it's very, very symmetrical. Uh, if you look at the D-pad and look at the buttons, you see them in, in that arrangement. And even the little plastic thing below the buttons on the PlayStation controller acknowledges that. The plastic, there's a little plastic indentation below the buttons on the PlayStation controller that makes a cross shape. That's an exact echo of the cross shape that holds the D-pad on right, the left side. Right. Right. Uh, it's almost as if Sony saw the SNES controller, but just decided that the arrangement of buttons had nothing to do with where your thumb was pivoting from, really. Right? Not that it's that big of a difference, but they decided that, well, and this is this is a temptation in industrial design, all things. Let's just make it symmetrical. You got a cross on the left, you got a cross on the right. It's beautiful, right? It's it's equal. You know, there's a direction control and a cross, and now you have four buttons in a cross. And that's nice design-wise. Look at look at the controller. Look, it's got two circles where those little things are. It's got two handles that are symmetrical. It's got the shoulder buttons uh, up on the top, which are, you know, you can grip them now easier because you've got your your pointer fingers free because your other fingers are able to grip those little handle things, right? And it's got start and select uh, in the middle. With the, again, those aren't that important because they're they're rarely pressed and not really using gameplay. Uh, so there's there's your PlayStation controller, I- innovative in that it gives you more something more to grip on. Very derivative of the SNES controller, and the I keep calling it the industrial designer thing. I don't know where it comes from, but I'm trying, like the industrial designer's sense of things should be symmetrical, things should be at right angles, uh, things should be beautiful. More more than acknowledging that the buttons should be uh, arranged in an ergonomic manner. It's more like they should be arranged in a way that looks nice. And they're still undifferentiated. So now let's go to the N64 controller, which is the Nintendo sort of waking up from its slumber and saying, well, we did the NES and the SNES. Now let's go, uh, let's rethink this. Did you have a Nintendo 64? Yes. No, wait. Let me think for a second. I, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember. No, I did not. I had a, a friend who had one, and I played it so much that in my mind it was mine. But no, but I didn't so, play that James Bond game that everybody played. Did not. I didn't play that. Did not. So if you look at an N64 controller, it looks like a nightmare. Yeah. So first of all, now y- you see the, these little horns poking out on the left and right side, which are reminiscent of the PlayStation horns. This uh, uh, we've stopped completely of the pinching the harmonica. Uh, school of, of design is an acknowledgement that you need something for your hands to grab onto. Uh, so on the left and the right are these little pointy horn things that you can grab onto. Look at the shape of the first. I'll start by looking at the shape of the little pointy horn things compared to the shape of the pointy horn things on the PlayStation controller. Flip back and forth between those. The, the shape of the little horns to grab onto on the PlayStation one controller are very smooth and regular. I don't know if they're perfect cones or slight uh, conical sections 
but like there is a you could put a straight edge against the edge of uh the taper on the handles on the PlayStation 1 controller. You, if you put a straight edge on the handles on, on the Nintendo 64 controller, they would not touch the entire surface. They were completely curved there. So now you see that uh, Nintendo is really designing for what it believes will be the, the negative space created by a grasping hand. Not perfectly. It's not as if you just grabbed a piece of clay and pinched it and then took your hand off and saw what shape it made. But it's the industrial design sense is now taking second fiddle to ergonomics in these little handles, whether it was successful or not, whether it fit everyone's hands well or not. I'm just saying in the shape of the handles, they decided that being comfortable to hold was going to trump being easy to manufacture, being easy to lay out in a CAD program, being beautiful to look at. They're like these lumpy little appendages, right? So sprouting off those lumpy appendages, on the left side, you've got the D-pad in the same old spot. So you grab that little horn and put your thumb there. Your thumb is on a D-pad. It's a good old Nintendo D-pad. It's like what their company was built on practically. It's there, right? On the right side, you've got the, the little horn and a whole mess of buttons. You've got an A and a B button, which are at an angle again and in kind of a line that your thumb would kind of lay over. So you can <laughs> hit the A above it and, your, and your, the B above it and A down. Then you've got in a perfectly symmetrical <laughs> cross arrangement of C buttons. You've got, you know, up, down, left, right on, on the C, the C buttons. And the buttons themselves aren't labeled. They're yellow and they have arrows on them. So they're clearly a reflection of the D-pad. They're in a, they're in a circle arrangement, but, the, but they are, they are perpendicular. They're perpendicular to the D-pad. It's very hard maybe, to see the, the directional arrows on them in this picture, but you're right. They, yeah, they are they're, there. They're there. And if you look at it, I believe they may actually be uh, in the exact mirror arrangement of the D-pad. So the D-pad is in one position on the left side and on the right side, rather than a D-pad, you have four distinct buttons. Uh, and then you've got the, you know, start button in the middle. Uh, but the really strange thing about the Nintendo 64 controller is that in the middle, you have this even bigger lumpy horn thing sticking out. <laughs> and uh, sprouting out of the top of that where your thumb would fall is the analog stick. Harkening back to the Atari days of having a controller that simply doesn't send force signals to the game console up, down, left, and right. Now it's a little stick that you can position in various ways. Uh, and there's shoulder buttons up on the side too, and underneath that you can't see this little Z trigger that you can pull, pull a trigger. You're holding onto this horn, kind of like you know a handle of a gun, well, there's a trigger under there now too. So your, thumb, your, fing- your pointer finger's on the trigger and your thumb is on that. Now, you don't have three hands, so what's the deal with these three horns here? This was a Nintendo hedging its butt- bets. He said, we want to support all the games we could always support before, I guess. So the position of uh, on the left side, we still have the D-pad. And if you hold the controller like a PlayStation controller, like an SNES or NES with one hand on the far left of the controller, one hand on the far right of the controller, your thumb falls on a D-pad and your right thumb falls on a bunch of buttons, right? But what they hoped was that you would take your thumb off of the thing that's on the D-pad, move it over slightly, grab the middle horn, put your thumb on the analog stick and play Mario 64 which did not use the D-pad for controlling Mario at right, all. It used right. the analog stick, and it was just the central part of the game is what the thing was built on. As they said, in, in, when you're in the world of 3D games, which was what the N64 is all about, you need to have analog control. Uh, and th- there's one other thing I want to point out about the N64 controller, and I don't know if this, this is something that a surprising number of people have not noticed, but is crucially important as far as I'm concerned. Look at the thing that the analog stick is poking out of. The hole in the controller. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm going to say about this? No. Okay. Well, what? what oh, what, couldn't you push what, it down? No. Look at that. Look at the little hole the controller is poking out of. Yeah. What shape is the hole that that little stick is poking out? It of? looks like. Uh, is it an octagon? Hexagon? I, actually, I never count size. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yeah, octagon. All right, and it's it's an octagon shaped hole. 
It's not a circle hole. Why, why is that whole octagon shaped? Is it arbitrary? Is that part of the design? I don't see any of the octagons in the design. The buttons are certainly circle shaped. <laughs> octagon is not a motif for Nintendo's design. It's not a reflection of the D-pad's cross shape. Why is the analog stick not poking out of a circular socket? Because it's, it doesn't really provide you with circular controls. It's really only potentially eight. No, it provides you with circular control. Uh, so that you can lock it down into the corner and spring it back to the center the right way. It's so that you can have physical feedback that you're going exactly up, exactly down, exactly left, exactly right, or at the 45s. That's what that hole is there for. Do you want that feedback? Do you need that? Yeah. And you, yeah, unbeknownst to so many people, uh, you know, like that feature was never trumpeted, never talked about, but it is crucially important, especially since you were probably holding this controller at kind of a weird angle. <laughs> It's like you're not holding on to the left and right handles. It's kind of like twisted in your hand. You're holding on the middle handle and the right handle, and it's kind of awkward, and your so hands this, are kind of closer together. This tells you, you in, in a tactile way, you've got this thing straight, you've got this yeah. thing up, you've got this thing left, so, wherever you need to go. Yeah, and unlike the D-pad, where no matter how you hold the Nintendo controller, and you can all picture in your head the kid with his tongue sticking out of the corner of his mouth holding the, the <laughs> Nintendo or SNES controller way up over his head right. and angle, like leaning to the side. He's not, his thumb is not confused about which way up, down, left, and right are, because you can feel it in the D-pad under your, your thumb. You can feel up, down, left, right, right? But with the analog stick just waggling out there, you know, free-balling it in the air, if you've got that Nintendo 64 <laughs> controller off to the side with your tongue out, are you sure which direction exactly up, exactly down, exactly left, and exactly right is? And the ability to know that is crucially <laughs> important in 3D games, because usually the, the, the only camera control they would give you is swing, de- swing directly behind me. And then when you swing directly behind you and you push exactly forward, you will go exactly in a straight line without deviating from the tiny bridge that you're on or whatever. Uh, this, this innovation is one of the most important things I think Nintendo has done since the D-pad. And it was crucial, especially at the beginning of the 3D age, uh, to provide signals that are not provided by the analog stick that were provided by the D-pad. All right. Now let's go to go to the next thing, which is the PlayStation DualShock controller. As a few people in the chat room noted, and as younger people perhaps don't know, the original PlayStation controller is exactly as I just described it. It did not have analog sticks anywhere on it. The DualShock came along uh, copying off two of... Uh, cop, I don't know if you want to say copying off it. it in reaction to two innovations from Nintendo. The first innovation was the analog stick. The PlayStation sure as hell was a 3D console, but Sony apparently didn't think that 3D games needed anything other than a D-pad, right? And the second one is the rumble feature, which is added to the Nintendo 64 controller through a big honking port on the bottom through which Nintendo figured they would add stuff. And one of the things they added was a thing that you would plug in that had essentially a cell phone vibrator in there, a little uh, motor with an off-balance weight on it or whatever. So you put batteries in there, shove that thing to the bottom of your Nintendo 64 controller, and then when something happened on the screen or, or an explosion happened or you came near a secret in Zelda Ocarina of Time, your controller would shake. I remember when that, that feature first came out. I think it shipped with Star Fox 64. People were like, why the hell would I want my controller to shake? This also, for younger people, will sound crazy because, as we all know, every modern video game controller has a shaky thing in it. Uh, and we just accept it. You know, the rumble is a feature of, of home consoles. But... Believe me when I tell you that when Nintendo introduced the Rumble feature on Nintendo 64, it seemed crazy. It seemed silly, ridiculous, and it's one of those things that until you get used to it, like, oh, I guess this is a natural fit for gaming. But if, if they tell you oh, you're going to buy an accessory with the batteries that makes your controller shake, you're like, why in the hell would I want that? <laughs> so the PlayStation 2 DualShock controller is called DualShock. Dual because it's got the two analog sticks and shock because it's got a Rumble feature in it. 
And it's dual. It's like, well, Nintendo added one analog stick. Well, we here at Sony are going to add two. That's twice as good, isn't it? Uh, and, and there turn out to be many interesting reasons for adding two analog sticks. But let's look at the DualShock controller. It looks basically like the PlayStation controller. They didn't move any of the PlayStation controls, really. I mean, they are technically moved a little bit. But you've got the D-pad on the left. You've got your four buttons on the right. They're both in mirror image crosses of each other. And then kind of squished in towards the middle are two analog sticks sort of tacked on to the existing controller. So it's not going to screw with your ability to play your current games. You can still play Tekken 2 with the exact commands that you were always used to with your thumbs in the same spot. But if you happen to play one of these new 3D games that did analog support, move your thumbs sort of down and inward instead of like where they naturally fall when you grip the thing. Just move them, just move them down along that radius and they should land on these analog sticks. Now let's look at the surrounds on the analog sticks. The DualShock has circular surrounds on the analog sticks. They also, if you look back at the N64 controller, N64, the top of the analog stick has, uh, uh, what are they called? The word where there's rings inside of rings. I can't believe this is not. One, one ring to rule them Concentric. All. Concentric circles. Okay. Concentric circle ridges on the top of the analog stick for grippiness. The PlayStation DualShock has kind of a matte finish rubber for grippiness. I don't know what you would call that, but two different approaches to maintaining good friction but definitely a circular surround. The stick that holds the N64 controller is long and skinny so that it can land in those uh, octagonal grooves. The, the stick that holds the DualShock controller things is short and stubby. The DualShock controllers, uh, someone can correct me on this, but I know it's true of PlayStation later controllers, that you can push them in as well for, for another button press. Right, that's what I was saying before. I was confused about which one. You could actually sort of press it down and it, would, it, would, it was another button. Yeah, uh, so, so in, it's kind of like the... I would say in typical Sony fashion, but it's very similar to the fashion of PC manufacturers in the world. You know, you got one analog stick, we got two analog sticks. They got buttons and push them in. You know, like just, but, you know, it's, it's, clearly, it's clearly an addition. Uh, and as it turned out, the dual analog sticks became important for first-person shooters because you use one analog stick for analog movement and another analog stick for analog looking around and have them be independent from each other. Uh, so having two of them definitely was uh, an innovation, but I wonder who was motivated by simply saying, well, one is good, two. And, and think about how this thing would look. This is a good thought exercise. How would the DualShock controller look with just one analog stick, and where would that analog stick be? You have to imagine the analog stick would be, they'd keep the left one, right? Say they only made one. It was the single shock controller. But then think about how this thing would look without that other one there. It would look like a PlayStation 1 controller that someone sneezed on and an analog stick stuck to the edge. Actually, this is an analog stick stuck to my controller. You know, when there's two of them, you can buy the fact like, oh, it's kind of nice and balanced. But realistically speaking, both of those analog sticks are tacked on. Right. Right. The controller is not designed with those in mind the way that they were added as an afterthought, as a reaction to a competitor's move, the same way the rumble and everything else was added in there. Uh, So now let's go to the PlayStation 2. Oh, you're skipping the GameCube? Uh, GameCube is out after the PlayStation 2, okay. I believe. All right. If I have the timing wrong, it's... Uh, I'm going generationally. All right. Yeah. So, you have the PlayStation 2 image up? I do. What does that look like to you? You're talking about the PlayStation 2, 2 DualShock? Yes. I just put it in the chat room. I should have been doing this all along. Sorry, chat room. It, lo- it looks identical in every way to the other DualShock. Yeah, but it's black. But it's right? black. It's not identical in every way. I think that in the PlayStation 2 DualShock... I think that's when they added pressure sensitivity. I should really read these things instead of going But appearance-wise, it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So they went from the PlayStation 1 to the PlayStation 2, and they decided they didn't really need to redesign their controller. Other than 
possibly adding play, uh, pressure sensitivity, 256 levels of pressure sensitivity. Someone can correct me and follow up if I'm misremembering when they added pressure sensitivity. Perhaps it was added in the dual shock. I'm sorry if it was. But bottom line is, physical arrangement-wise, it's essentially the same thing. The analog sticks are still down there. They still got the rubbery surfaces, still got the circle surrounds. You got your cross full of buttons. You got your D-pad up there, right? Uh, and at this point, I think it's safe to say that console gaming was defined by 3D games. People will quibble and say, no, I was still heavily into uh, fighting games on, on the PlayStation 2, so I or I was playing RPGs where analog control didn't matter or something. But I'm going to say that the PlayStation 2 era... Was the, was the time in which you can say definitively console gaming is about 3D gaming. Right. And 3D gaming, I think everybody agrees, I'm not going to say requires, but benefits heavily from analog control. Like, no one wants to play a 3D video game using a D-pad, right? It's just awkward and weird and doesn't work, and how do you move on an angle, and how do you move slowly? It just doesn't work. Forget about, and then, you know, first-person shooters, first, certainly, you're not going to be moving your aiming crosshairs with a d-pad it just it's no it's no way to live right <laughs> it's, it's not possible like, it's like playing marathon with the keyboard which we all did for a certain period of time oh, until yeah. we figured out figured out mouse look thanks to uh, quake and everything uh so when they made the playstation 2 that that was i have to think they knew that that was the environment that their console was going into and yet and yet if you look at the playstation 2 controller if you look at what is the primary directional control on this controller, it's still the D-pad. When you grab this thing, where your thumb lands naturally is on the D-pad. Yeah. All right? Uh, and, you, and you've got the other control. Like, it's still the PlayStation 1 controller with analog sticks tacked in to the side. Now let's look at the GameCube controller, which is the it's Nintendo sibling in that era. Let's look at what this thing looks like. Got that up? Yep. Did you have a GameCube? Nope. Missing out. Uh... So the GameCube controller. All right. Gone is the middle horn. Nintendo has learned that that hedge that it made with the D-pad uh, was not necessary. That pretty much anyone who used a Nintendo 64, unless you were playing some horrible fighting game port to the N64, of which there were a few, uh, you were using the analog stick. So it's like the whole left half of the N64 controller was wasted with that hedge on the D-pad. And you had your hands way too close together, gripping that middle thing. It was. I, I still think that, especially for kids' hands, the N64 controller really did just disappear because those handles were really nice for kid-sized hands. Hands, And even though your hands were a little bit too close together, you just ignored that left side of the controller and it felt... it dis, the, the controller still disappeared when you were playing. So the GameCube controller, that's out the door. It's got two handles. And what do you see here? You see on the left... First of all, the handles, still weird and blobby shaped. Again, still completely designed with what they hope is a shape that will be comfortable to grip by a wide range of hands. Not designed in any way to like a piece of sculpture to be, you know, to be perfectly uh, regular or even or have straight edges or be like a cone or anything like that. All right. Uh, analog stick in the place of prominence. Now, huge analog stick, big fat analog stick right where your thumb would be on the left side, concentric circles for grip, a larger surface, a slightly shorter handle. And surrounding it, an octagonal surround with the exact same little dents for up, down, left, right in the 45s, right? And then tacked on to that in the position where the analog sticks are on a PlayStation controller is, the, is a tiny little D-pad, which incidentally was way too small and uh, very difficult to correctly push the right direction uh, while playing Rogue Leader to try to get your people to attack a target you accidentally hit left. But yeah, so there was a little D-pad down there. But it's clearly now not the star of the show. It's out, it's out of the picture. 
on the right side, they went with uh, a, a recognition that all buttons are not created equal. That every game has a primary button and then maybe a secondary button in some like tertiary and whatever the word that comes after tertiary is. So you've got a big honking A button exactly in the same spot mirror-wise as the analog stick. Huge A button. The, perhaps the biggest button since the Atari <laughs> you know, 2600 in terms of prominence. Like right. There was only one button. That is the button you press. The A button. Off to the left along the arc of your thumb, you've got a little tiny B button. And then above and to the right, but not exactly above. It's not exactly above like at, at a 90 degree angle or, you know, zero degree angle. And then to the right, not at a 90 degree angle. Just kind of arced. Why is it arced? Because that's kind of where your thumb would be going. You've got Y up and X to the right, which finally makes some sort of sense in terms of the Y axis and the X axis, right? If you, uh, I don't know if they have the thing on, on uh, Wikipedia. If you were to look at this controller from the side, you would also see that the Y button extends above the plastic higher than the X button. There's like there's like a circle-shaped platform that these buttons are all on, kind of, and it is an exact mirror of the circle-shaped platform that the analog stick is on. And those circle-shaped platforms are completely flat and level and even with each other. But the Y button extends higher out of that platform than the X button does. You and can does kind, of, kind of tell that. Not really. And, and it does that because it understands that you're, when you're reaching up for the, that upper button, your thumb is going to be curved upwards a little bit. So you need the button to kind of meet the surface of your thumb. Like the tip of your thumb is higher than the, than the middle pressing down surface of your thumb. You know right. what I mean? If you look at your thumb right now. Mm-hmm. Whereas the one on your right, you're just kind of rolling to the right to get to that one. And then in the secondary control place, there is another stick, which is a replacement for those C buttons. Another tiny little nub of an analog stick, which was probably a little bit too small. And they have the little dents there, same octagonal surround, even for their secondary control. So you can tell exactly what up, down, left, and right is. Anyone who has played Ocarina of Time using a GameCube controller knows that that little stick being a substitute for up, down, left, right buttons is not a good fit. But it is a good fit for, for example, controlling your camera. Now you've got analog control of your camera in a game like uh, Mario Sunshine. You must be killing people with the Marios this time. I love, I love <laughs> it. I, told you, I think it's great. Don't worry about it. You know, so it's an analog stick control with all the benefits, but it's a clearly a secondary one, right? So here's very, very different philosophies in this generation of design. Nintendo has taken this experiment with the N64 and taken all the learning that has, it has produced there and tried and, and gone further, saying, we've learned from going from N- SNES to Nintendo 64 that we should not build things, or from NES to N64, we should not build things that are easy to manufacture, that are simple, regular rectangles, that have simple, regular shapes, like even the SNES has two circles on the side. It's got to be designed with the expectation that it's going to be held by hands. Even the, the body of the, the GameCube controller is like an arc-shaped, reflecting the idea that your hands are coming together and that there's single pivot points and there's an arc, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas PlayStation, the lesson PlayStation took from, N- from the Nintendo's evolution from NES to N64 to GameCube is we should tack on some analog sticks to our controller. That's what they got from it, basically. Yeah. Because analog is the future. Yeah, but we don't really need to change anything else. Because and, and why should they? Because PlayStation was incredibly popular. Nintendo 64 was not incredibly popular. PlayStation 2 would go on to be even more popular. Uh, let's go to the next one, which I believe if we we're in, going in the chronology, I guess we'll look at Xbox now. Okay, now I can talk again. Because I had this. So first we'll look at, uh, I don't Chat room, I'm sorry, I, don't, I didn't look up these chronologies. I assume they would come off the top of my head, but every time I want to say one of them, I second-guess myself. What was the first console? PlayStation 2 was out before the Xbox. Is that correct? 
They're asking no. about Dreamcast. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do Dreamcast. I can't do everything. This is probably boring the hell out of people already. But Well, it's at the tail end of the show. I mean, they could uh, just go yeah. away if they want. Yeah. So PS2 is before Xbox. So let, let's look at the Xbox controller. Now, did you have the original Xbox controller? Yes. I had the one that is pictured here that it, the file name is called Xbox Duke Controller. Yeah. This was the, I guess I've heard it called different things, but it was the larger sized xbox controller that i guess people didn't like because they said it was too big and who has hands this big type of complaints about it and uh, they later came out with another controller that was called the xbox s controller which you could get uh and they advertised it and you could buy it separately and then i think it shortly after that it became the standard one that they were shipping and it, it was a much better controller but i played the heck out of halo uh with this first controller yeah, I need to put in the, the, the obligatory Penny Arcade, the links for this. But yeah, so the Xbox controller, let's see what lessons Microsoft took from the history of consoles up to the point when it introduced its first console. Let's look at this arrangement of stuff here. So first thing, clearly, this thing is designed uh, with hands in mind in some way because it is not shaped like a rectangle it's not regularly shaped it's not shaped like a cone it's not shaped like any simple geometric shape it is a is a, just a mess of curves right now you can argue about whether those curves were comfortable for your hands or not whether the curves were too big too small uh, the bigness i think was actually a conscious decision because they said oh the average age of the, of the gamer in the nes era was like eight years old the average age of the gamer when the xbox came out was like you know 28 or something like the average age of the gamer was going up so they were trying to design a controller that acknowledged that the hands using this would not necessarily be a child's hand right so they made it bigger uh what is the primary directional control pretty clearly if you look at if you grab this thing the way they want you to grab it where does your left thumb fall it falls on an analog stick analog stick is grippy rubber but it also has a a, a concave dent in it the surround is still circular but there are little notches on the thing to trying to let your thumb know what exactly up down left and right are and i believe this had a pressure sensitive thing in it too a press down button thing yeah. yeah The buttons on the right side, uh, there's an arrangement of four buttons that are the same size, then two smaller ones. They are not arranged in a perfect cross. They're arranged in these little curves. Uh, they're concave instead of convex, but you can see how they're arranged with an eye, with an eye towards where your thumb will sweep across these buttons. Never had a problem knowing which button you were pressing. Yeah, and you, know, you can tell, like the big ones all feel the same size, but you can tell from the position which one is which, and then the secondary buttons are smaller. Uh, and then you've got your secondary analog stick down kind of where the GameCube one is with a different top surface feel with the same four little notches in it to tell you what up, down, left, and right is. Still a circular surround, still grippy rubber. And on the left side, you've got their non-patent infringing version of the D-pad. Maybe it was eight direction. Was that, was that one eight direction? It was yeah. eight direction, yeah. As far yeah, so as I remember, it was. And it, it had a strange f- surface to it. There weren't little arrows on it. It was almost a lumpy. It was wavy. Yeah, wavy. But you could still kind of feel like you could tell where the 45s and the 90s yeah. were on that thing, uh, pressing it in, in a kind of disc shape. Uh, now, the interesting thing about that controller being too big with, with the Penny Arcade comics that I will put in the show notes, which you should read, although you probably did if, you are, if you're still listening to the show and you didn't read those Penny Arcade comics when they came out, I salute you, <laughs> sir or madam. Uh, they, they made it bigger, but what they didn't count on was the fact that all the adults who make up the now average, you know, 20-something-year-old gaming population who have adult-sized hands, all those people grew up playing tiny little controllers made for kids' hands, and they are used to them. 
So they screamed bloody murder when you made a control that was big enough for adult hands because it just felt too damn big. Right. Because we spent our entire lives using small controllers. Now, some people who didn't have any particular, you know, people, people just don't like change, right? So other people who liked the larger controller and it actually did fit their hands better and they weren't hung up on how it felt different, they liked the big controller. Were you, were you in that camp? I was in the camp that, I, you know, when people were complaining about the thing being too big, I was like, what are you talking about? Felt, felt, felt fine. Yeah, some or especially like people who weren't used to the small controls. So some people did like the big one, but enough people, like the big hardcore gamers who had grown up using using the little harmonica controls, using the PlayStation controller, things that are just not didn't have a lot of volume that filled your hands, right? Even even the GameCube controller, the handles on it, Nintendo was always very sensitive about not making a controller that's too big for children's hands. So even though they're trying to strike a balance and make something that fit inside people's hands. The GameCube controller is actually pretty small. It's the Xbox really S controller, it w- was better, though. It did feel better. It did fit hands better. It was an yeah. improvement. Yeah, and, and it's not just a matter of what you're used to, because there's an argument to be made that that Microsoft thought that you would, like, fill your palms with it, and that felt less secure to gamers and really was less secure it than was. something that was small that you could grab. So the S controller, which they very quickly introduced, which I believe was the controller that they, they originally shipped in Japan, uh, they didn't ship the big American hand controller in Japan because <laughs> Japanese Japanese people are tiny and they, they need child sized things. I don't I don't know the, I don't know what the thinking was for shipping that in Japan. Uh, but they shipped the S controller in Japan, I believe, from the start, and they quickly changed uh, in America to the S controller being the default. The, now let's look at the S controller. The S controller has great controller, man. Has little nubs. Has the little blobs coming out instead of being like this fills your palm it's more like a little grippy nub that you grab again not regularly shaped it is a organic looking shape meant to be grippable analog stick in the same place they moved the start and the what is that other the start and back buttons are moved over to the left the d-pad it's still like uh it has now the shape or the implied shape of a d-pad on the surface of it but i still think it was an an eight point yeah and, and I think they moved the those the, the start and back buttons because they didn't have any place else to put them. Right. So they did something interesting over there, which is very strange to me that they ever did this. They changed the arrangement of their buttons on the right side. Mm-hmm. They moved the black and white buttons, from, completely moved them. They used to be on the top. Now they're like below the arrangement. And they took they took the A, B, X, Y buttons and put them in a perfect cross, perfectly aligned. So I think that's a step backwards from the other arrangement. Uh not that big a step backwards. I just don't like the thinking that that that, that reveals. They that, also use the the same uh, analog stick shape and texture is is on both of them now. Yeah, uh, and maybe that was a wise choice too because they started to become more like you you play Halo for a while and you realize like what's more secondary direction or where you're looking like they're kind of they're kind of a tandem. They're not exactly siblings because obviously where your thumb falls naturally is the buttons, stick buttons, stick buttons. So, you know, it's like a uh, what is it? Uh, someone's going to bring this hand on throttle and stick uh, from Jet Fighter days. Uh, so it's, it's hand on uh, analog stick and buttons. So the other <laughs> analog stick is a secondary control. Even if yes, in Halo, it's not really because you're using the triggers to fire and stuff. You can't even see these in these pictures that I'm looking at. But yeah, underneath there, there were triggers. That's something else I didn't mention on the GameCube controller. GameCube went to uh, instead of having just shoulder buttons, it had triggers with analog travel to them and then an extra thing at the end uh so the xbox did the same thing even more like triggers they were like trigger triggers like trigger on a gun uh and you know many games use that for firing while then you could have both thumbs on the two analog sticks and still be able to fire and do stuff with your trigger fingers uh but i was saying the 
I don't like the philosophy that buttons in a perfect cross shape indicates to me because it's saying that regularness, sort of order, uh, is it Euclidean? Euclidean order of having things exactly in a T-shape is more important than what is natural for your thumb to fall on. And, and in reality, that shape, that cross shape is very close to what's natural for a sweep from going from A to B and X to Y. So it's not that big of a deal. But still not still, still not on board with the Nintendo idea that there's a primary, secondary, tertiary, and then a thing that comes after tertiary button. Did anyone in the chat room throw out the thing that comes after tertiary? I don't know what it is. I didn't see it. Uh, but the buttons are all the same size. No, no real acknowledgement of which one is primary, except for the fact that I guess A is the letter A. You know. Uh, so but that it was is, that. it is a quaternary, then quinary, centenary, Qu- quaternary. Yeah, that's no good. Septenary, octenary, nonary, danary. I'm quaternary. sure you've heard of duodenary, though. Yeah. Well, obviously. So that's that generation of consoles. So let's go to the next generation of consoles. So let's, we'll go to actually go to the Xbox 360 first and look at what the Xbox 360 controller looks we gotta like. we got to look at that one. Uh, I've never touched one of these. So the, first, it, the first in, the, in uh, all of these that I've never, never laid hands on. I think it's gone back a little bit more towards the big Xbox controller in terms of being this round thing that you cup versus having these horns that you grab. It's kind of like a... It's kind of like a uh, a middle ground between the S controller and the big Duke thing. Uh, analog sticks are still identical. The little dents that used to tell you what up, down, left, right are, are now dots. The surround is still circular. Uh, <laughs> and, and they're actually, they're, if some opponent might argue for a pro for the circular surround is that if you're in any game that requires an actual circular motion maxed out at the edges, it is more pleasing to be able to circle around on a circular thing than it is to bump yourself around an octagon. Uh, but I just, Think that's not a common move in games. Is the little is, that. is the little Xbox X a, a button? Do you know what the the D pad? You mean? In, no, in the center. Oh, the center. Yeah, I think it's a button. What does it do? It brings up the live control panel. I don't know. I'm showing that I've never owned an Xbox. Someone, someone in the chat room. Because can. the previous versions on the the Xbox logo was not a button. Uh, they're saying it goes to home. It bring, brings up the guide. They say I, I, this is like the Xbox Live dashboard thing, but the guide, whatever they whatever they call that thing, it's like it's like a home button. Uh, the the secondary D pad thing, it's kind of like a big flattened out T, the eight way pad, I guess, or whatever. The buttons there are still in that perfect cross arrangement, which they seem to like. Uh, the the black and white buttons are gone, so you've just got X uh, X Y A, and B in a perfect cross, still all exactly the same size. I believe the cross is slightly off axis. It's not exactly straight up and down, left and right, but it's hard to tell from this picture. And I haven't actually used one of these extensively, so I couldn't say. Uh, so it's, I would say it's a refinement of the Xbox controller. All right. Oh, did I lose this in another window? I'm trying to pull up the, the next controller. So now, now let's look at the... Let's look at... Uh, well, we know what the Wii controller looks like. I actually didn't even include that in the thing because the Wii is like... We're we're done with this whole idea of having, having a thing that you hold. You know, it's a remote control that's square because television remotes are square. It's got a big hunk and a button on it. Uh, I'm not even looking at a picture. And I'm just going from memory on this, but you know, it's it's kind of not of the same evolutionary lineage. You could look at the analog stick and the nunchuck and say, how has this changed from the other one? Uh, and there, I think the the changes there are. They instead of having concentric circles, they have one circular ridge around it. Still got the octagonal surround. Uh, but really, it's just a whole other branch of the evolutionary tree. So we're going to confine it to things that you hold with two hands that have a bunch of buttons on it. But 
here's where we want to get to the meat of this, which is the PlayStation 3 controller. So in, in this generation, the Xbox 360 was the first console that came out of this generation. The Wii was the last. So, But uh, the PlayStation 3 is the one everyone was waiting for because PlayStation and PlayStation 2 were so dominant. Clearly, PlayStation 3 would be dominant in the new generation, right? Because it's a foregone conclusion, right? You know, the lead never changes. Uh, and when the PlayStation 3 was being shown around, they showed this crazy boomerang controller. Do you remember that? Hmm. It looked Vaguely, like it, not really, not really. You can probably find a picture of it. I should have put this in the notes too. You can. Uh, it looked like if you took a piece of clay, rolled it out into a tube that tape that had points at the end, and bent it into a U shape, and then grabbed onto it. People saying it looked like a batarang. Yeah, I'm looking and, at a picture of this thing now. I'll put this in the show notes too. Send it to the. Uh, it's not a great. Well, it's a it's a oh, blurry. Some, someone's got it. Okay, yeah. that's a better one. This is a the one on Wikipedia is a little blurry. This yeah, is from so. PS3 Vault. So this didn't ship. This was shown like in a glass case to people. And you can see what it looks like. It's uh, if you look at the controller, like it's it looks like a big melty bent thing. It's still got the D-pad, but the D-pad is not exactly perpendicular. <laughs> it's a funny looking thing. Yeah. And the, the buttons, the, the, the arrangement of buttons is still in a perfect cross, but it's the, the axis of the cross is tilted. You've got two analog sticks in their usual spot, but a slightly different surround. You've got some shoulder buttons and stuff. I've never held one of these. I don't know how many people have held one of these, so I don't know how it would have fared. But th- the point is, that's not what shipped. What actually shipped is, if you look at uh, the, the, the PlayStation 3 6-axis, they called it. Uh, I believe that was the very first one to come with the, the PS3. Chatroom can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. Uh, it was not called DualShock because they, they were in the midst of a lawsuit with a company that was suing them over their rumble feature. So they couldn't include the actual thing that shakes the controller. So it would be kind of dumb to call it dual shock because there was nothing about it that shocked you. Uh, They called it six axis because it had accelerometers inside it. I have to wonder about those accelerometers being a reaction to uh, Nintendo's plans uh, with the Wii, which I believe at that point were known, but I mean, I'm sure they have people in the, you know, industrial espionage and everything the word must have gotten out through third-party developers or anybody else that nintendo had some sort of motion control thing going and i have to think giving sony's mo that the the six axis only has motion only has accelerometers in it because of what nintendo did with the wii the nintendo did not make the wii and didn't have motion controllers that the six axis would not that's pure conjecture in my point feel free to argue with me if someone is inside sony and listening to this program tell me what the true story is uh, and I will gladly pass that information on or not if you don't want me to. I would just uh, like to know. As someone says, that's that's a very speculative assumption. You're right, it is speculation, but I think it fits with Sony's MO, right? Sony was, like, Sony was clearly not invested in motion control. The games that supported 6-axis supported it badly and were worse for using it. Right. Well, they were, a lot of them were bad games anyway. Uh, and, and it is the type of thing that you could shove in there at the last minute because it's just a component you throw it in you can provide inputs to the games for it you don't need to redesign controllers or cases for it uh, you know what i mean it just stinks of a last minute thing but i'm not, I'm not gonna pan them for it it's, it's an additional feature is it not here's the thing that kills me with sony and i've been trying to contain myself since then since the beginning of this thing they made a controller the playstation one controller in this like coming off of the snes controller that looked like an snes controller but it had some innovations with the horns that you could have on it or whatever but otherwise was basically the SNES controller with horns sticking out of it, shoulder buttons. Uh, and they even undid a little bit of the ergonomics of the SNES controller in terms of the arrangement of their buttons. And over the course of three generations of controllers, and how many years? Oh, i got to look this up. Uh, how many years between these things? PlayStation controller, 
No, it doesn't say. I don't know. Someone in the chat room can look up how many years. I'm going to say, I'm going to say a decade. Over the course of a decade, they decided that their controller didn't need to change. That the the ten minutes of thought they put into copying the SNES controller and putting horns on it, and then they tacked on the analog controls. That doesn't need to change. They're introducing for their current generation right now, as we're talking, the Sony current generation game console is designed as if the primary control is not the analog stick. If you look at the PlayStation 3 six-axis controller and the, the DualShock 3 that followed it, the primary control on this thing, it's like, oh, you're mostly going to be using the D-pad. But if you want to use the analog stick, we've got some tech down at the side over here. They have learned nothing from their competitors, Microsoft or Nintendo. And they continue to ship basically the same controller from their very first console because they just, I mean, it's insulting. They just think it's not important. It is not designed with hands in mind. It's designed with regular shapes in mind. It's got those little cones that you hold on to. Even the shoulder buttons are like slightly curved to be a little bit more friendly, but they got these sharp little surrounds on them so that when you're holding on to a giant Colossus and Shadow of the Colossus, the stupid edges of the thing are digging into your finger because it is not designed for your fingers like the, the GameCube shoulder buttons are, like the Wii triggers are, like the Xbox triggers are. No, they're just these flat little rectangular things inside sharp little cases it drives me insane. I could not believe it when they shipped the PlayStation 3 and still didn't change the controller. When is it they think they're going to acknowledge the fact that most games are controlled with an analog stick? Is, is it ever going to happen? Is the PlayStation 17 going to come up with the same freaking controller? It is a horrible, horrible, horrible controller. Yes, I'm pronouncing that word in a way that does not please you. I'm, what can I tell you? <laughs> I do not like this controller. I didn't like the PlayStation 1 control that much because it didn't have analog sticks and it boggled my mind that you know, they, would, they wouldn't learn from the N64. Well, they did learn from They tacked on the controls. I'll give them a pass for that. Fine. Dual shock. You tack on the analog sticks. I understand you can't retool everything. You get, you're reacting to a competitor. Surely when the PlayStation 2 comes along, you'll rethink. Nope. Same old stupid control. All right, fine. You're, you're the powerhouse. You're in the driver's seat. I understand you don't want to disturb. You don't want to do anything to break the lead. It's like, you know, being on a batting streak. You don't want to change your underwear. You want to eat at the same place before it. Whatever. Dual shock. Fine. PlayStation 3. No more excuses. I'm sorry. You need to make a new controller. You need to make a controller that is made for people to hold with their hands. The DualShock 3, the 6-axis, there is no excuse for them. They are the possibly the most offensive consumer electronic ergonomic device ever created by man because of the popularity, how many people use them, and, and just, like, there's no work involved. Look at all your competitors. They're doing interesting things. They are experimenting and trying. They're thinking about what shape human hands are. Sony, not. This is my largest annoyance in the entire world of uh, gaming hardware by far. Well, I love graphics, Blu-ray, HD DVD, little tiny GameCube discs running backwards, all that stuff. This is just inexcusable. And the real thing that gets me riled up about this is that nobody else cares. Nobody else cares about this issue. And why don't they care? Is it perfectly explicable why they don't care? The same reason they hated the big Xbox controller. One of the reasons they hated the Xbox controller. People are used to what they're used to. If you grew up with the PlayStation and the PlayStation 2 and the PlayStation 3, that controller is built into your DNA. Those analog sticks are not in the non-primary position. They're exactly where they're supposed to be. It's exactly where my thumbs fall naturally. Of course they do, because you warped your body to serve this horrible device that is not designed with your hands in mind, but you are so used to it that, in fact, making a better controller, an objectively better (laughs) controller, will anger people. Because they'll say, oh, the analog (laughs) sticks, they're not in the primary location anymore. People, that's not the primary control location. If you're old enough to remember, 
the PlayStation 1 controller. That's where they thought they should be for your thumbs. That other location with your thumbs bent down that you're slowly giving yourself, you know, tendonitis and, and inflaming your tendon sheets as you contort your thumbs to be in that lower position. That's not where they're supposed to be. I know you're all going to say, this controller is the most comfortable controller I've ever used. I am so comfortable with this. I have no problems with RSI. This thing is built for my hand. I'm telling you that you need to disengage from what you're used to and think about it from a design perspective, which I, hopefully I've conveyed by going through the actual tiny aspects of these controllers piece by piece in the entire history of controllers that there is progress being made by competitors that is not being acknowledged by these other controllers. I'm not telling you that you should think that all these other controllers are more comfortable to you than the DualShock. Uh, what I'm telling you is that Sony is not respecting you as a consumer, is not making an effort to make better controllers. It's sticking, even if you love these controllers, even if you love them and think they're the best controllers ever, you have to at least acknowledge that Sony is not trying to change things. You may say that they're, you know, if it ain't broken, don't fix it, right? Why should they change it? They've already made the perfect controller. But I beg you to allow the rational part of your mind to engage and, and get a little bit of traction and think about what I've said. This is a bad controller. This is a lazy controller. This controller has disadvantages that other controllers don't have. Sony is not making progress in controllers. Ignoring PlayStation Move, ignoring the Wii, ignoring all of that it has just been a streak of either intentional negligence or incompetence on behalf on the on the part of Sony to use the same controller essentially for PlayStation 1, 2 and 3. And as I said, the fact that I'm the only person who cares about this, even a little bit, uh, shocks me, one, because you would think there'd be at least a couple of crazy nerds like me who get obsessed about this stuff, uh, and saddens me, because it means that people just don't see these differences, that they really can't see past what they're used to. And it, what they're used to and what is actually good are one and the same. And there's no, there's no reason to think about any of these other aspects that we've talked about. That's what I have to say about the, the PlayStation controller. Do you have any thoughts on that? Have you ever thought about this at all? Have you ever looked at the, the PlayStation controller, considered the fact that it's been the same controller for three generations? <laughs> I, re I really haven't because I have only played a PlayStation a couple times. Yeah, yeah I haven't paid you're, very you're, much attention to it at all. I mean, I've probably held a PlayStation controller a half dozen times at the most. Never occurred to me to care about it because it, it's just not interesting to me. I've never, never really played a PlayStation. You know, I think, I think I've held them in like a target or something. I don't even know anybody in, in real life that has one. I mean, I mean in real life, like I could go to their house and play one. And most yeah, of the maybe, people that I know that have the PS threes bought them because they were the cheapest Blu-ray player they could get. Maybe you're not a good example. And in, in the chat room, as expected, the people who grew up with playstations are telling me that the PlayStation controller is the best controller uh, someone said that their hands are symmetrical, so why shouldn't the controller be? It's not so much about symmetry. All the controls you're talking about are more or less symmetrical in terms of right and left, right and left hands, although there is some acknowledgement that one hand is doing one thing, one hand is doing the other. It has to do with... I mean, I, I think the PlayStation 1 controller is the best example if you need to think about this. Look at what the PlayStation 1 controller looks like and look at where the controls are. Those controls weren't put there with the expectation that analog sticks would be added later. Uh, those controls were put where they thought was the, th that D-pad location on the PlayStation 1 controller... That's where Sony thought at the time, probably just based on what the SNES and NES controllers were like, that's where your thumb will land naturally. And for however many years in between, for whatever, a decade, three generations of consoles, they've decided that that thing needs to stay there. And the analog sticks they tacked on with the DualShock, uh, people will just continue to reach down for those, and that'll be it. Uh, 
And I think that's just awful. That is, if I had to pick one offense of the PlayStation controller, of all the many offenses, that the, the shape of the handles that that is more an acknowledgement of some designer's whims than it is of the space created by your hand when you grip something, the uh, the exact right angles of every single thing on this device, as if it's a piece of sculpture, art, or a building, the shoulder buttons that have very little acknowledgement of the fingers that might be pressing them, the equal sizes of all the buttons, the lack of the octagonal surround on the analog controls, uh, the attempt to make grippy rubber that eventually comes slippery as your thumbs get sweaty and you slowly smooth and polish the surface of those things with your thumbs. You know, all of that thing. If I had to pick one sin that is the worst sin of this controller, it's the fact that the analog stick is not in the primary control spot. It just, it just boggles my mind. All right, I think I'm going in circles now. You'll be all right. This is pretty much what I have to say about the PlayStation controller. I'm ready. PlayStation controller fans, please write me in and tell me how you have used other controllers and they left you crippled. You had to <laughs> go on food stamps because <laughs> you could no longer do your job because you tried to use a insert non Sony brand console here and it crippled you. You, you are now destitute. You are a homeless person listening to this podcast in a cyber cafe in 1992. Uh, I, I will accept all of your experiences as perfectly valid. I'm telling you from a hardware design perspective, from an ergonomic design perspective, the PlayStation controller sucks balls. From a personal perspective, <laughs> it may be the best controller you've ever used and you may love it. I, I don't deny your love. You can continue to have your love for the controller. You can continue to enjoy your controller. I applaud you. Enjoy your life with your controller. I'm trying to go up like three more levels and say... It's someone's job to make the best controller. And whoever's job it is at Sony to make that controller is not making progress and everybody else is. And that's independent of your particular enjoyment of the PlayStation controllers. So I hope to God the PlayStation 4 has a different controller. A controller that adopts maybe 20% of the innovations that we've just discussed at incredibly boring picayune detail uh, all those things that I think are great about the, the the other controllers, which other controllers have their problems as well. I'm just saying there have been innovations. The octagonal surround, I'm a big fan of. I can understand people who might not be, but there are definite advantages there. The analog stick in the primary control location. Triggers that are actually triggers that have travel to them, that, that, uh, that uh, conform to your fingers. Handles that are not shaped like they were made by a CAD program or a robot. Like all of these things that have been, you know, there's no perfect controller. There's nothing that's going to fit everyone's hands perfectly, but just... Just make some progress. Do something. Think about it for two seconds, please. I beg you. Okay. You is that a show? That's a show. I think it's a show. What a way to start off the new year. John Syracuse. So you can debate with him on Twitter. Syracuse. S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. On Twitter. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. You can hear more episodes of this show by going to 5by5.tv slash hypercritical. You can send us uh, your thoughts, comments, and feedback directly on the same website, 5by5.tv slash contact, and just pick hypercritical from the list and we'll get it. You can rate the show on iTunes. You know, it's the beginning of the year. we got to go through all of it. Rate the show on iTunes. Helps new people find out about the show. Unless you love the PlayStation controller and want to give it a one-star review, right. I, I request a cooling-off period. And then reconsider. <laughs> maybe, maybe this mandated this cooling off period. Incredibly long, <laughs> boring walkthrough console game controllers may not be representative of the show as a whole. And perhaps you, Sony controller-loving person, would like to reconsider your one-star review and perhaps review it a different time. Right. Everybody else is free to 
review. And that's it. You can see the show notes uh, again by going to 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 49. All of the links, all of the pictures, everything that we've been talking about here are available there to you. People have asked how they can get that automatically without going to the website. Shame on you. But you can just subscribe to the feed with an RSS reader and they'll show up there. And thanks to HelpSpot.com for providing us with the beloved show notes. And that's it. That's all we got. So we will uh, we'll be back next week, right? You're not we taking will. off again. Assuming, assuming the, the PlayStation controller uh, fan society hit squad doesn't take me out. Yeah. Nah, you'll be fine. I hope so. Have a good week, John. You too, Dan. <laughs>